sadistic teachers i would probably you know free dodgeball all day you know because that's not sadistic pick out which other class members you don't like and pelt them with a ball high school is awful school in general is awful having to associate with most people in life is fairly awful you know it's weird you know you're always told look on the brighter side look on the sunny side going out socializing is good for you and uh, i hate to ho- hate, uh, quote clerks i hate people i love gatherings but i just don't like going out i don't like going around town to milkshake stands i got i don't i'm pandering milkshake stand again what is this milkshake stand <laughs> you don't have a milkshake stand in your town no this you know what in 1953 Oh, I, yeah, well, maybe I live in a classic piece of, uh, you know, Americana where there are milkshake stands left and right on the streets and you can go with your sweetheart and neck. I don't, you know, speaking of high school, we could have stayed there and I brought up the milkshake stands again. There's money in the milkshake stand. Never forget those <laughs> words, though. Okay, there's money in the milkshake stand. This is very important to our future. Just remember that and don't let anyone know about it. But uh, sometimes when you're in high school, you watch movies and well, wait, this may, never mind. This is just so I watched a movie this week. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, we could we are doing school movies pretty soon, but that's not the intro because we have to do recently seen first. My recently seen movie even fits into that because it's about this high school chick or college. College. Level. She's she's young <laughs> and she is babysitting because she needs some extra income and it happens to be uh, Satanist. I don't want to give too much away. This is Ty West, House of the Devil. The first time I saw this movie, I really didn't like it. I don't know why when you say Ty West, I get I don't know, I shrug and am just kind of a dick about it. And I don't really know why, because I go back and I watch Ty West movies and they're all pretty good. The Sacrament, I, I get what he was doing. I think the first time I just didn't like that how in your face it was. But I mean, sometimes you just change the names and do things a little differently for artistic integrity and avoiding uh, surviving family members suing you if you're covering a mass atrocity or something like that. But it's not a bad movie. Uh, Tom Noonan is sweet in almost everything. He will in everything he does. I wouldn't say almost, because even Last Action Hero, Tom Noonan's pretty fucking sweet in. So the Noonanator, he reigns supreme in this. 
Again, I don't want to give too much away, but it's just a generally good creepy Satanist movie. It's got one of my favorite usages of a gun in recent horror movies, because guns are used a lot lately, and it's just kind of like the Scream movies. You've got that dumb throwaway with the gun at the end, and Nev Campbell shoots Skeet Ulrich. Like, I, I watched this whole time for you to just shoot the bad guy in the forehead. That's kind of lazy. This has a really cool use of a gun that uh, is, is popping. It's jazzy. I need a killer thrown in a wood chipper. That is what I need in an ending of a film. Fargo was great. <laughs> you just watched Fargo a couple of times. Get that out of your system, you know? Yeah, but, you know, that was a kind of a, a decent person in a wood chipper, not a mutated fucking... Wait, wait how, how was it a decent person in the wood chipper? It was Jerry Lundegaard's wife, for Pete's sakes. Well, I thought all of them were going in. Not what? I thought it was Peter Stormare going in when he gets at the end. Oh, it was it was also Bashimi too. But he was putting Bashimi's leg in at the end. I guess yeah, yeah. Technically correct, but although I wouldn't. Oh yeah, that's what I was throwing it out. Like I don't think he was that great of a guy. I mean, his his death was somewhat foreseen. Fargo depresses the hell out of me every time I watch that movie. I'm left completely embittered. Um, which several of these movies that we're going to talk about later tonight just like high school, left me very, very embittered and, um, I don't know, pretty cruel and angry and confused. First time well, I got my period, it was awful. Wait, what? Never, wait, never mind. With House of the Devil, I saw it after it came out, and it was very much lauded as being a return to real old school in 1980s horror, and they even released it on VHS and all this stuff. And I watched it, and I thought it was pretty overhyped i think the the gun scene you're speaking of is probably the best scene in the movie just for how shocking it is maybe overall. i didn't like it when it first came out because i texted you and was like hey have you seen house of the devil and you were like yeah i don't think it's that great i like <laughs> and that that very well could be because there's a lot of times that i've come back onto something that uh previously I've poisoned you well we've we've like talked about it on the show and uh, maybe it was just my mindset but i've seen it differently and you know it's like oh well um, the Rangers not one of those. Just keeping that in as a constant reference. The Rangers still not a big. <laughs> well, like, so many my problems. problem with House of the Devil is it's for like an eight, 80s homage film. It's shot fairly well. They are able to create a fair amount of tension into it. But I have found myself every time I've tried to watch that movie that I get really kind of bored and I stop paying attention through most of it when it's mostly her walking through the house and like weird things happen. It just, it just is not engaging well, that's where, at all. And I just kind of lose it towards the end. That's where to me, I think it really begins to pander to like, Hey, remember it's the eighties. It's a Walkman. Check it out. It's the eighties. Remember the eighties leg warmers. It's the eighties. And like, that was part of my problem with the Suspiria remake of like, I'm aware the Berlin wall is there and it's the seventies cause David Bowie, I get it, and, you know, David Bowie and the Berlin and Iggy Pop. I mean, I get it, I get it. Well, there just wasn't a lot of story there for me. It just, uh, hey, Satanists, and then it's pretty much a bump in the night. But Ty West also made a movie called The Innkeepers, which a lot of people have loved. It's kind of a, it's a ghost story and it's set in a hotel. And again, it's shot really well, but, like, it has maybe two or three things in it that you could consider really to be scares, and the rest of it is just it's kind of a lot of walking and trying to build tension. And I, I understand how that can be used effectively, but I just think he just, he continues on with this whole thing. We've got to build this up. We've got to build it up. I'm like, yeah, but I need something to happen. Cause even your like 
your ultimate thing you're going towards Willis building of attention isn't even really that exciting either. So it's just, it's that mumblecore kind of cinema thing going on where it's, well, it's the incidental that's interesting. It's the small things. And it's just like, yeah, but I'm a eighties horror dude who needs some big things to happen every once in a while. A nice medium. I don't need like, you know, crazy fucking slasher deaths every five seconds, but I need stuff to happen. I, but I'm also the person who will say that I think the original Halloween is, it's a little boring. I think it's actually a little bit more like, I think Halloween two is a better movie kind of overall, just because it's, I think it's more exciting. I have said this, uh, I know a lot recently on the old live death by DVD, but I'm just not, I guess where I'm at right now, slashers really don't do a lot for me. So Halloween, it's great, but it's, there's there's much better John Carpenter that I personally would reference over Halloween. Like I will always bring up Assault on Precinct 13 right off the bat as one of my favorite Carpenter movies, just because I love it. And that's my personal, you know, thing going in the way there, but I don't know. Halloween holds a lot for people. It's, you know, the masked killer, the slasher aspect, but I'm just, you know, I, if I'm going to sit and watch a slasher, I'd rather something more giallo paced, like give me something like pieces. And I'll uh, freely admit that I think Halloween is a masterpiece. I think Halloween is it's a great very, use of Steadicam. It's a very important film. It's a very beautiful looking film. And I think it's, very important for all these things, yeah. but just on a core level, it's a definitive would, movie, and it's like one of the greatest of all time. Bit, to yeah. be honest, though, just how much it's played. Well, okay, but, we've done this and talked about it before, but how many fucking times in our lifetime is Jamie Lee Curtis going to come and say, "Yeah, that last movie was nothing. This next one, this is going to be the like she's doing it again." The We're like, back to the core of what Halloween is. Not has, much happened. That's well, what the core is. It's not much happening. I mean, has she even gotten the memo that this new movie is connected to the old movie? Because the press release still so far is like, yeah, this is going to be 10 times better. Like, damn, she's just repeating herself every 10 years. And I guess it's gotten serious. Like Jamie Lee Curtis needs, I don't know, to pay off a yacht or some poor decisions in the 90s. But she keeps having to pump these out. And like, I have nothing against people having fun because that's a big thing, you know, uh, my childhood's coming back. I get to enjoy myself. I get to have my cake and eat it too. And that's fine. But it's the same people that were bitching and complaining about the Buster Rhymes movie that are going to complain about this one in 15 years of, you know, whenever the new wave comes out and something new to complain about happens. And this again will be praised. And it's just, I don't know. It gets muddled down and boring and you can't like my bitching what I would like if I could have a solution is to take that uh, original material and base a new story on it. People tried to do that, like, let's say, with the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street remake, and everyone bitched and hated it, and to much dismay, I thought it was somewhat all right. But I don't even mean to that extent, like, let's take Halloween and, God forbid, bring up Rob Zombie, do something maybe like he did. I'm not saying that's a great movie, but at least it's a completely new, interesting concept, and he worked on it. He brought something different to the table with that idea, and on our last episode where we talked about Suspiria and the Neon Demon, Dario Argento, I think, says it the best, and I'm not anti-remake by no means, but he feels if you remake a movie, you need to either do it exactly the same way, which is useless and a waste of time or do something original or new and at that point you could have just called it something else and like again halloween 3 nobody really liked it when it came out some fans i love it you love it but some people okay, really well, like it but it just is the concept is not accepted by fans think about the original halloween 
he fucking chokes like two people to death. Boy, how entertaining is watching someone get choked to death and know somebody get a knife stabbed into them once. And again, it's not about massive amounts of violence, but think about Halloween 2 when it's not a particularly violent film overall, but the murders are more interesting. There's more things going on. It's just like there's a little bit more of a body count. It's not so much about like a, a haunted house type situation. It's like... You know, Friday 13th had come out at that point, and we need a little bit more of a body count. We need more things going on. It's just, for me, on a personal level, I think Halloween 2 is more enjoyable at this point in history for me to watch than the first one, just because it's just it's kind of played out, and it's a little bit boring. Sorry. I think Halloween 2 has a different level of fear, and the more quintessential Michael Myers that is remembered and adored by people is presented in Halloween 2 more so than the first movie. Because in the first movie, it's just the shape, this loner, strange shadow that you don't really identify, you don't have anything to represent, and then you have the unmasking at the end, and whatever, you know, it's left open. What I think is kind of unique is that this movie still manages to fit in with the entire show because it's about people go in school. They're in high school. Oh, guess what? I haven't done my recently seen. Does it tie in even more? Yes, it does. Sort of. Oh, gee, it's golly. About school, though. Is it about milkshake stands? No, it's Dude, a I'm Brian gonna, De Palma film. I'm going to cut that shit. I'm going to cut that milkshake stand shit. We got a new sound guy, Michael, and he's going to cut that shit. Oh, did you fire Raul? Raul quit. He found us abhorrent and against <laughs> his religious beliefs, and he he quit. He is gone. Yeah. Oh, I liked Raul. A nice chap. Yeah, um, he uh, didn't like me very much. I watched 1991 or 92 film Raising Kane from Brian De Palma. I haven't. I saw this movie once in 1992, I think, or whenever the fuck it came out. I saw it in the theater, and I was hyped to go see it because I like John Lithgow. I was like, okay, a horror movie, blah, 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 Brian De Palma. And I thought it sucked back then, and every time I saw it in the video store, it's like, I haven't seen that in a long time, but God, I do remember it sucked, though, really bad. And then I haven't watched it in, God, what, 30 years now, maybe? And then I finally watched it, and it continues to suck. It's not a good movie. It's a bad movie. With Cal is, I don't know what Brian De Palma said, just just do the hackiest performance you can. You've got multiple personality disorder. Do a, do a, a little kid character, and he's just— Be the dad from Troll. He's just—he's uh, just—he's hamming it up the entire fucking time, and With Cal is not great in it. Brian De Palma apparently forgot things about filmmaking because um, he said he was trying to make a comedy, like a dark comedy. That's, uh, as far as I'm concerned, mostly a lie. I think he just <laughs> didn't know what the hell he was doing. And yeah, that's a lie. Because some of it is ridiculous. Like, they, um, hey, we discovered this body. She died in terror. Look at the look on her face. And they pull the sheet back, and she's making this weird comedy fucking terror face and, like, a music sting of, duh! It's like, seriously, was I supposed to take that? that that's, you're going with that? Okay, we're going with that. Um, but I did um, do reading on it and all this other shit. And there is a director's cutout from, I believe, Shot Factory put a director's cutout, which is not even his director's cut because the original version of the film is a director's cut. Um, he listened to the studio, blah, 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 and he kind of strayed away from his original script. And the way the original film is, 
with a fan edit that somebody put on the internet that De Palma saw and said, yeah, put this on the Blu-ray. I like this fan edit better than my movie. And all he really does is go back to the original script of what it was, and it starts out as... And there's no new footage at all. It's just rearranged footage and rearranged the timeline. And it kind of starts out like Dress to Kill, where it's about a woman cheating on her husband and all this stuff. And then we start getting into the crazier stuff progressively. And the movie all of a sudden becomes about Lithgow's character. That's the director's cut. And then the, um, like the theatrical cut is all of this stuff is kind of out of order. And the first scene we see Lithgow, you know, he's crazy. You know, he's got some fucked up issues. So that makes the movie, uh, the director's cut is actually better than the theatrical cut, but it's still a ridiculous film. I mean, the ending is like um, De Palma trying to recapture that magic from the end of the Untouchables. He even has a fucking baby carriage in the scene. And it's all this ridiculous slow motion and people doing like, there's a fucking sundial on the back of a truck that somebody says, hey, watch where you point that thing. You might kill somebody. And then we go into this scene and the sundial becomes important. This truck is just backing in and out of a parking space because somebody might eventually run into this fucking sundial point. It's just, it's wholeheartedly, terribly, like, thought of and, like, done scene. He, he like, De Palma really started showing his hackier parts at this point and started to fail more and more. And if you've seen, like, a, was it 2013 movie, maybe, called Passion? Or passions, holy shit, does that movie fucking suck? Wow, De Palma does not know what the hell he's doing anymore. He's an old man who's just getting by on his name alone. He is just making weird soap opera shit. It's weird. He needs cocaine. That's he what he cocaine. He was the most creative on cocaine. That's what really made Brian De Palma. I mean, Scarface, I think, is one of the pinnacles of him and cocaine, and it was pretty great. But all in all, it's kind of like the Cabin Fever remake that, you know, you can take the exact shooting script of something and take the humor out of it and make it completely bland, boring product. So rearranging something boring in the first place, you kind of end up with It's still basically boring. the same movie, but the reveal was a lot better and the director's got a couple other things like that. But overall, it's a ridiculous fucking movie. The acting is all bad. It's just terrible. It's on Shutter right now. So everybody, watch Raising Can and Shudder and be really disappointed. I'm pretty sure House of the Devil is also, because it's on Joe Bob. So, But they do pull episodes of that down here and there. So I guess segueing in, uh, we will talk about Brian, Brian De Palma. De Palma. Uh, well, more of Brian De Palma will appear, but this show's very loose wraparound where we were able to gather a bundle of movies and something to talk about for an hour plus is back to school, depending on the release of this episode. It should be uh, around late August. Boy, is that weather weathering crazy late August. But people are going back to school. Uh, if you're not, and you're in your 30s and 40s, and you're watching other people go back to school, or unfortunately forced to look at people's children photos that they post on Facebook of their fucking goonies-looking chubby kids dressed up like the fathers that left them. Uh you can just ignore all that and listen to this episode and get a list of amazing movies and one that's all right. I'd say mostly amazing <laughs> say movies and one that's all right. It's not bad, but it's all right. It could have been better. We'll get to that one, and you know what it is. I gave it away right off the bat. But it's back to school time, so all these movies are uh, 
about school. I don't know why. I sound not like really Kennedy. about school. They're kind of focused around schools, and yeah, you know, I guess they can kind of be about school. There are, I believe, students in every movie. I think is what we managed. Yeah, not. I don't know if every movie features a school, but they all at some point have students in them, or is about students doing something. So it's a loosely connected back to school episode, but it's product, right? It's something. It's a download. That's the important thing. Yeah, you. Uh, you a couple you, weeks ago, all they got was a, a an old classic episode. So hey, two. this is new content. That one, you got two old classic episodes. The first two, King of the Basements, because guess what? As I mentioned on that episode, we're getting ready to do part six, and we don't feel like doing five new ones. So you get all the old ones. <laughs> you enjoy it, and you take it, and you. It's not, I don't think anything. If we've gotten any complaints, I think mostly it's because we don't argue and say things suck anymore and make fun of each other. And we actually are talking about movies. And I guess people miss... You know uh, what, Hank? You kind of suck. There we go. Let's start this. Let's start it. Let's go round and round. See, unfortunately, I have a lower self-esteem than I did when we started the show. So I just agree with you like I do. (laughs) But yeah, you know, I don't know what I did, but I do suck. Thanks for reminding me. That, my friend, is called life. Enjoy. You used to have optimism and hope. Gone. Yeah, and a couple of the other Hanks did crack, so that really <laughs> added some pizzazz to, you know, how things came out on Friday nights. Because that the old show was done on Friday nights at 11 o'clock, so we would, you know, be ready, raring to go to, to broadcast this fucking sometimes. thing live. And yeah, sometimes. Oh, it's a little bit tooted, you could say. <laughs> sometimes I'd feel a little bit like Jimmy anything. Buffett on a Friday night. Yeah, no, you got attacked by a guy with a sword once. And what did yeah. any of this have to do with school? Little to none. But you know what? I uh, I I go to the school of hard knocks. Do you ever see that on Facebook? You ever see you know old family member or somebody you went to high school with, and that's all it says. You know, you go to their bio, life studied at the school of hard knocks. I, I never understood if that was something meant to impress you or wow you or to give you some. Yeah, you know, what you fucking sell drugs at the mall still? What are you doing? What do you mean the school? What's been hard? Yes, because there's something inherently wrong with having an education. It makes you elitist. And what better way to celebrate elitist than to talk about Carrie, a back-to-school film? So they were directly going into the diploma, so now there's nothing to hold people to the end of the episode. They would have waited the whole time going, well, I thought they were going to talk about Brian De Palma again. Now we're giving them their cake. This is oh yeah, Brian De Palma is never cake. The rest this of the is show the is icing. See, this is <laughs> this the cake is the for butter me. that goes into the cake. This is the sweet, sweet Jack Fisk butter. <laughs> it's only been like two weeks since I ranted about how much I love Jack Fisk, and I'll, I'll straight he's really up talented. He's a talented guy. He is. He's an amazing guy. I I will start my review of Carrie the worst way you could start any review because now I have to dig my way out of this hole. I hate Carrie. But it's a fantastic, brilliant movie, and my hatred is absolutely because I'm a fucking pussy. And you get like a quarter of the way to the movie, and I just want to snap. Just stop treating that girl that way. Just she has a hard time at home. Life is hard. Just stop being so hard. And it just it depresses the living love and hell out of me, which is the point. I completely, fully understand it's the point. But you know what? I'm already depressed. And uh, I managed to watch this back to back with another of tonight's movies that I'll mention which one when we get to it. And God, just gosh, Jilly, I wanted to go to the, uh, you know, milkshake stand afterward because I was feeling 
just blue. Just so blue, like the song. Oh, plug it up, Hank. Plug it up. Yeah, God. Carrie starts unrelenting. Uh, there's Jesus, just... Jesus, it's a little harsh in the first five minutes. Yeah, full-fledged nudity and then just absolute hatred. Carrie I wouldn't even... jokes. Yeah, not even vulgarity. I would say full-on hatred. Just the movie starts with a blast of negativity, just sticky negativity all over your face. <laughs> okay, that's an odd metaphor to use for that. But, um, oh, yes, but I've never been with you sexually, so I guess you could be correct about that. Not this Hank, at least. <laughs> um, okay, Carrie, it's gonna be a little bit similar as talking about Halloween. I think Carrie is a pretty amazing movie. I think it's Brian De Palma's powers being all used, like, like a full steam engine for the first time all of his little camera gimmicks his use of like mist and the vaseline winds and you got the, the um like nature of the film at the end of phantom of the paradise you've got the split screen a little bit but it is so much a, a greater used uh, that's such so poor phrasing used. the usage it, is so much better in carrie rather yeah, it, it really works in Carrie and split screen subsequently in other films. It just seems like they're using it as a gimmick. And even Brian De Palma himself, I don't think he knows really how to use it anymore. But in Carrie, I think it really works. And what he was able to achieve mostly with Carrie is just the dreamlike nature of the entire thing to where it does not feel like reality. It feels like almost a saccharine, saccharinely sweet Americana ideal and this awkward girl thrown in the middle of it who's been abused at home and a lot of um, that is just jack fisk too is this is it's kind of funny like if you did this with a double feature of badlands you can really see the guy's work unfold as art director and what art directors have to do to make a movie and their involvement or, or if a director is being that or you know whatever whomever's running that position there's just a certain capturing of that americana that he's really capable of having and it runs and the camera runs and things just look and feel very similar to badlands and it's really unique just knowing that's jack's magical touch in this and uh you know because he's a great guy jack fisk well they always said that de palma was like one of the successors to the hitchcock throne which i can partially agree with but i also think richard franklin the australian director is more so i mean he was he was literally Hitchcock's protege. He worked with fucking Hitchcock. Um, but De Palma was able to take like Hitchcockian ideas and really translate it into this um, high school film that's it's 1970s high school. So it's which is odd than, because it still translates fairly well. I mean, I think oh, yeah. bullying in general is universal, but there's sort of a timeless feeling to this movie, albeit very dated to watch. There's just something that travels and, and flows very well, and I think that's something that is all on De Palma just capturing and his fluidity. You mean like uh, William Katz's blonde afro? That's a little God. Yeah, that's a little bit. He wears little dated. I would wear that tuxedo every day of my life to Walmart to go shopping, though. Like that, it's a baby blue flared, beautiful tuxedo. If Amy Irving and William Cat had had a kid, I imagined it would look like cousin It from the Adams family. Like imagine that just mop of just poofy curl. It'd be like a Shih Tzu. But like, what Brian De Palma was able to achieve with this film, and he after this was able to kind of live off the idea he created with this film and his style to where he was able to make some decent movies after this. It's just, he kind of has a bag of tricks and he's not much, 
so much into like narrative and emotional. And I think this is probably his most emotional film because it runs very quickly, though. I mean, there's a lot less personalization to the movie than there could have been. And I know a lot of that would be delving deeper into Carrie and her mother's relationship. And like Piper Laurie mostly thought the movie was a comedy while shooting. So I'm sure that was no help having her, you know, running her lines and, and thinking or being misled to think that it was a comedy. Well, if you look at a lot of Brian De Palma's other work, you don't get much emotion out of it. It becomes kind of sterile and a little bit workmanlike because he's playing with his bag of tricks and he's not really focusing on the emotional content of the story. But I think with Carrie, he's really focusing on that emotional content to where you can really feel for the character, the characters, you understand who they are and his actors are able to give really good performances because he's not like fucking with a dolly track for fucking two days. I mean, there's a scene in Raising Cane that they spent one whole day just rehearsing. And it's just, a, it's a nice little camera trick, but it's ultimately at the end of the day, it's fucking pointless. It's just somebody telling a story while walking through a bunch of stairs, but I got all in one shot. That's great. I mean, that's a, it's a nice shot, but you rest of this movie is shit. You didn't concentrate anything on the, the characters at all. You just concentrated on a bunch of gimmicks you could use to tell this story. And Carrie is not so much about the gimmicks. The gimmicks are there, but there is an emotional core to this film, which is something to be said from Stephen King, uh, his efforts in writing the book. But De Palma was able to take the aspects of the book that worked and just kind of discard the rest. Because the ending of the book of Carrie is pretty fucking lame. It works in print, but as a visualization being punished by God by falling rocks is... Even in print, there's only so much that this poor movie reviewer can take, and I just don't care for it. Like, I don't care for the Carrie ending of the book whatsoever. The only way it works to me is how De Palma ended the movie. And you can take the same material, and they've done it three times now, because they had the television remake of Carrie. I liked the Angela Bettis one. That was bad. It's got issues because it's a TV movie. Yeah, it's a little bit bland because of that. But I think Angela Bettis did an awesome job because they mostly took out what better actor for Carrie. Well, I mean, Angela Bettis is great, but they took out what effectively makes Carrie so special. And it's not like she's stupid. It's not like she has any problems. She's just disliked and bullied. And that was a great emphasis that Sissy Spacek brought over. And again, it was not just to keep pandering and fucking referencing her former work but it's just similar characters she's played before small town girl doesn't you know it 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 worked very well and you know sissy wasn't the lead to get this anyhow so jack kind of forced her to get the role and it worked it was her carrying it so just making the character dull and it's whatever like what are you doing that wasn't the point she's not stupid she's not like sitting in the corner so why is why are you defining that as what the character is and i feel the remake with angela bettis just was like i don't know let's just make her dull let's just make it really it's a dull. Meat and potatoes version of that book it's taking no interpretation from what the material is and just going here's what it is this is who your character is now go and it ends up just telling that story but it's not telling the emotional story behind it which was what they were able to achieve with the the original. And then that remake in like 2015 or whenever it was, was just not good at all. I mean, first of all, just don't choose an actress 
who is not awkward looking, who in fact is very attractive to play Carrie. That's odd. That's odd you would go with that choice. Well, I mean, at least if you're going to do that, do some, uh, you know, Charlize Theron stuff to her and make her look like Aileen Warnos. Man, because, I mean, she's like, she's a really cute girl and all they did was make her hair greasy. And it's like, okay, well, I guess you were picked. You would still be pulling tail. I don't care how much you're like, you're getting abused at home. Like somebody is eventually going to trick you into being their boyfriend. Well, the biggest problem. Girlfriend. The, the biggest problem with the remake directly is that it's very glamorous and it just abs- it even glamorizes the bullying. There's really no justice by the end of it. And nothing and matters. Special there's, effects. And yeah, it glamorizes a bunch of telekinesis special effects that are unnecessary. There's no personalization of the characters and it strays away from what makes Carrie so unique in her relationship with her mother. And that's something directly like early De Palma, 70s De Palma. He had this ca- uh, like ma- uh, he had this magic of managing to capture not so much a character's point of view, but almost a character's point of view without you having to worry about it. Like when Carrie is at the library looking at the, the books about telekinesis, you're really almost Carrie at this point. Well, like you're about- following her. Like when you get to the other two remakes, how kind of standard everything was done and what De Palma was able to do, like with his his use of slow motion, his use of long lingering dolly track footage, um, the the smoky atmosphere. And it's almost a heavy Travolta. It's very otherworldly and dreamy. And then when you get to the prom scene, it's all fucking business. And we're in with a lot of hard split screens and we're into a lot of hard editing cuts. We're not doing the long lingering shots anymore. We're like, we're picking up the pace of the editing. And that's really indicating something to the emotions you're trying to get your audience to feel from the beginning of this film to the end. And when you get the remakes, we're like I said before that we're just telling this story and you're not, telling it through the visual medium you're just telling what's it and the, uh, shooting it what what's the pig scene like in the remake i don't remember that because I there is nothing better once and i don't remember much other than that i uh, like i remember that stupid cars like in, like crushing in on themselves and she blew up a gas station and all this other crazy nonsense it's like I Whatever. hope John Travolta is kept up late at night from his performance of Killing the Pig in Carrie. I, I love John Travolta in this movie. He, he's he's at his Travolta-iest. I think he was still doing Welcome Back, Cotter at the same time. And, man, he's just a gem. Great hair. Drink some PBR. Oh, hey, I'm going to kill this pig. Look at me. I'm going to kill a pig. Yeah. You don't have the balls for this. Give me that. Give me the sledgehammer. Yeah, Travolta is doing that's his a little bit. best. You got the uh, counselor from Sleepaway Camp perfectly right there. <laughs> Angela, you <laughs> need to go swimming down by the lake with the other kids. You were doing it better beforehand. Now you sound like an extra on The Sopranos. We're getting all over the place here. <laughs> I went Jersey. I'm sorry. Sound, sound like Tony Sirico after he had a stroke, which I think he recently did. That's not even funny. Well, yeah, it is, but... <laughs> neither here nor there neither here nor there john travolta who else is in this william cat amy irving piper laurie she hadn't made a movie since like 1962 and she really i was mentioning this earlier she thought it was more or less like a dark comedy and so you know especially looking at her going in every day to costume and getting that black frock her hair is kind of crazy and unruly and long length she took everything and was doing this massive over-the-top performance under the guise that it was supposed to be funny and it's weird kind of reading about, like, the making of the movie. Like, Nancy Allen swears that she had no clue their characters were supposed to be so villainous, which I find odd because you guys go kill a pig, 
to get the blood to dump on this chick's head. And that's just, <laughs> I don't know what like Nancy Allen's school was like, maybe very, very rough, but that seems very cruel to me. And it's a weird ensemble. Like uh, this is an early, this is what before Halloween, right? Yeah. So PJ souls wasn't really anything. Had she done rock and roll high school yet? Uh, around the same time period. Yeah. And then you got Sydney Lassick who plays a cruel man. <laughs> I want my cigarettes. Yeah. Carrie. Uh, you, well, got any, uh, you got any more, Carrie? Well, th just think about, you're talking about Piper Warrior and her performance, and she the was able to give this kind of over-the-top, bizarre-as-hell, batshit insane performance, and if you look at all the other... Um, versions of Carrie out there, they've all been just stern, kind of Christian y mothers who just like will slap her and stuff, but they're not like fucking batshit. She insane, fucking stabs like, her at the end of the movie. Like, that's one of the most upsetting scenes for me. Like, it's not even bad enough that they dumped the pig's blood on her and she had her telekinetic freak out and everybody's dead and William Cat's beautiful, beautiful hair is all burned up. But she gets home and her goddamn mother stabs her like her day wasn't bad enough. She just wanted to have a good old cry and have a hug, maybe take a nap and pray in the morning. And uh, no, she gets stabbed. It's just upset after upset. But and again, you see the betrayal in Carrie when she stabs her too, because Sissy Spacek is able to get that performance, and not a lot of actresses can. Well, just talking about how De Palma shoots, that is one of my favorite shots when they go down the stairs and she's crawling backwards, and Sissy Spacek is coming up on her. I can't recall. It's not a statue of Jesus that's in the prayer closet. It's a it's, saint. Yeah, Saint John. I don't know. I, I guess I, no we could have put some effort into this and looked it up. I'm but not hey, Catholic. I don't know the saints. I'm sorry. At least we uh, called out that it's a saint. But I always found it like one of the most arousing shots when she is pierced and placed upwards in the same positioning, just like things ending the way they began. Time is a flat circle. All this pain and suffering has no point, uh, you know, under the eyes of God. It's just a nice religious imagery, you know, to, to wrap things up with. And it's just pretty. You have all this suffering and then in death, there's just this beautiful, peaceful moment. And it's like we discussed a couple shows ago how erotic Giallo is with its display of violence and penetration with knives, that there's just something kind of pretty about film death. If you can manage to portray violence or death beautifully, there's just something very poetic and nice about that. Go into Renaissance medieval painting. The old Bosch. Like mo a good portion of that imagery is violent in nature and the artists are able to still make it beautiful even some like goya who just takes really extreme scenes of violence and makes them look beautiful just by the way he painted them it's the same thing for film it's just you got to know what the fuck you're doing and some people do and some people don't they're like this looks beautiful and sometimes it's just nasty and mean-spirited and it just doesn't work it doesn't give you the same feelings anyway it's saint sebastian there you go internet shazam we've got the beats and the facts and all that here i keep making that we've got the beats reference it's because it's been stuck in my head for like six weeks we got the beats we got the beats i don't know you belinda carlisle it's it's a hard knock world so are we are we segueing into my territory we'll segue segue away is there a brian de palma film it should be 
Yeah, we should have just done the Brian De Palma special and talked about Phantom of the Paradise all over again. We can do but... his philosophy show right now. Um, lots of coke, do it now. That's the philosophy of Brian De Palma. Okay, we can continue. And then he got kind of clean, and that seems to be a little bit of a problem. He started to suck. A little bit. We'll move into something, too, that kind of sucks, but I'll be fair. Do you have, let's, we forgot to rate. Do we have a rating for Carrie before we move into something that kind of sucks that I've already pretensed poorly? It's a five. It's a five out of five. Yeah, it's Carrie. I'll go with that. I agree. Five out of five. You know, there's no argument for me. Not this time. I'll let you slide, De Palma. So now we're going to move into 2009, something a little bit more recent, directed by Karen Kusama and written by Diablo Cody, who I like. I like Diablo Cody. I think she's a really interesting writer, and I really like the United States of Terra, possibly just because I think Tony Collette's fucking great, which she is. There's no argument there. Jennifer's Body, Megan Fox, Amanda Zeefried, Adam Brody trying to be a cool hipster, weirdly pulling it off. Trying to be the guy from Maroon 5. Uh, he looks like the guy from Rune 5. It works, um, upsettingly. It's about a hipster indie band who is trying to sacrifice a virgin to Satan, and they accidentally sacrifice, I guess, what you would call the school slut, and she gets to come back as uh, a boy-eating demigod or demon. Is she just a demon? I think it's just a demon. Let's just call her it's a demon. A succubus, basically, a version of one. Boy-eating demon. She gets good looks and superpowers if she continues eating boys, which... Really isn't that much of a problem. Like that, that, I for most part, I think you got young Chris Pratt in this movie, and uh, a joke about him ass fucking Megan Fox, if I recall correctly. Uh, And he's still fat. I think this was when he was still kind of pudgy and cute, like a little bear. But essentially, I agree with everything Jennifer does up until she tries to steal Needy's boyfriend because that's just kind of bitchy. That's not (laughs) what you could. There's plenty of other boys that you could eat. And that's just not, I mean, because Needy up until then really has supported her outside of the whole, like, looking up how to kill demon stuff. But that's even a problem itself. You shouldn't be identifying whatsoever with the character Jennifer. Movie's title comes from a cool whole song that they didn't bother to play whatsoever. I thought it was weird. But they, they just played used, another one at the yeah, end. So. They put Violet at the end of it, but they didn't want to bother using the song the title came from. Odd choice to me, which I'm pretty sure they're on the same record is what's even weirder. But... <laughs> All right, like that that seems fine. There's a I wouldn't even say like there's a, a problem with plot holes in Jennifer's body. It's just it wasn't even that it was marketed poorly. Trying to push this as a high school like slasher age movie, I wouldn't even say that it's too adult. A lot of nothing happens. Like you didn't do anything horrifying, you didn't change anything from the average, you know, slasher tropes. You just turned it around and you made it Megan Fox. And, you know, she's popular because of the Transformers movies at the time. So you're essentially just selling Megan Fox killing people. Well, I think like this is the first time I watched this movie. I didn't watch it when it came out and I had to watch it for this show. So congratulations, Hank. You made me watch something. Um, you just chose Jennifer's body. So there you go. I was trying to keep it popping and fresh for the kids. <laughs> well, like, I watched it, and I like Diablo Cody as a writer. I think she's a smart writer. I think she writes really, really good and inspired dialogue because that's what this film is. It's full of, yeah. like, really super witty dialogue. Like another uh, movie we'll talk about tonight, it, one of the big carrying facts of why I enjoy this movie as much as I do is just uh, the dialogue and when it came out 
is, I guess, a sentimental time period for me, and the dialogue is pretty correct and true to how people talked and sounded in the mid-teens, I guess it was called, the tween years between 2000 and, like, 8 and 12 or whatever. I don't know how it's defined, but it uh, strikes home. It was just nice. It, it reminds me of how everyone was kind of a douchebag, and we were all senseless and skin deep, and we all still are. <laughs> it's when we started the show, Hank. Yeah, it was um, a good era. It was the era of, I've got to raid this bridge full of beer because i got to do the show in the lawn of this party. And that was the age. Dildo was a big popular term. I called you a dildo a lot back then. <laughs> um, Getting attacked by owls outdoors. With that being said, of how much I respect Diablo Cody as a writer, as someone who can craft expert dialogue, Jennifer's body didn't do much for me. And a lot of it is the fact that I don't think the plot was very well thought out. I think we concentrate a lot. It was like right toward the middle, like even with how cheesy the band sacrificing someone to Satan was and how goofball that that is operating under a guise like that. It could have just really shot off into a really well thought out spooky situation, but it just falls short, like almost like not another teen movie level of like flat and goofy. Teen girl becomes demon and that's as far as it got and she becomes a demon and then when we get into the horror aspects of it, it just seems like, and we do this thing and then we'll move on to something else. It's just like, you're not really concentrating enough on the horror. You didn't make Jennifer's transformation look interesting at all. You didn't really make her descent into evil that interesting because she was already kind of a shell person to begin with. So it's just really like lacking in a plot sense more than anything. Yeah, I wouldn't I, say she has a descent into evil whatsoever. She just realizes I have to eat people to survive, so I'm going to eat boys because yeah, they prey off girls. Yeah, it's not interesting for me. I mean, I might be wrong about it, but it's just well, I, I think that it's her, the it's plot the, very interesting. I think they're emphasizing or trying to play into more why not eat boys. All they do is use girls and eat us up anyhow. So it's got more of a motivation to, I I don't know, relate to Jennifer. She's trying to do something good for the world and her perspective, despite it being evil. And that's just kind of my takeaway that she, you know, is what's the problem? I'm eating boys. All they're going to do is hurt you and fuck with you anyhow. And essentially she's correct. So. You know, I see it maybe more as a feminist piece, but it just gets so muddled toward the middle. And then the ending is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, if she's had this power the whole time, why has she just stayed in jail? Like, it, I don't get it, but I'm not the one uh, that I, needs to, I guess. So the of the reality of the film as it is, I don't have a problem with any of those things because it's kind of hyper reality in general. But I did enjoy how they wrapped up the end credits. So I think that was an interesting play on yeah i was happy to, to see how to cover that justice and just kind of almost like a night of the living dead type ending sort of in a way but like i was saying it's just like when they get to the actual horror elements of the film it just isn't that interesting for me and it's not even the characters that i have the problem it's mostly just that the concept the whole conceit of the like the idea is like well you didn't do much with that you know it's really good characters you just didn't put them in that interesting of a situation for me this could have run like something more like juno and stayed light-hearted with megan fox still being possessed by 
some sort of demon or gaining demonic powers and it would have probably turned out better than trying to format it more like a horror movie because it runs and people start getting killed off like a slasher and it just starts i think even one of the last kills happens before all the other kills and is a retrospective look at what happened and there's even questions left to like well how did no one discover that like there's just too many open holes and it i think it's the audience that this movie was tried to it shouldn't have been put out as a teenage movie it shouldn't have been put out as a summer blockbuster that this could have been more like a fall or christmas hit and edited differently and turned out to an adult audience yeah it's you kind of splitting your audience because you're being kind of really smart about a lot of things like especially with how the characters act and the, how they I mean it's being released other. to like the final destination audience pretty much well to where like an adult audience can ex- like can appreciate that and so I think kind of youth audience can appreciate that but what I think where you strafe off is when you get into your more core horror audience in their 30s and 40s when you get into it not being very interesting as like a horror film. It's just like, why bother if you don't really care about the horror elements of it? So I don't know. It's just, you kind of split your audience on everything because the teens aren't going to want a more in depth sort of thing going on in the, uh, the story. It needs to be one of the other adults. Like once you give them that story, it's just, I don't know. It's just, I, I just don't think they fully figured out what they were trying to do with this. I appreciate this, like the, um, the character story they're trying to tell about the duality like, of their friendship and how that's tested through all this and how that their friendship has almost always been a battle since they were little kids and things like that. Like, I think that's interesting, but it's just the succubus demon shit is, I would almost rather just see it be about them splitting as friends and have no horror element than what I was given in the film. Basically. Yeah, I still think you could keep the demon element and and still run it as something like Juno and have it with these two friends having differences while one becomes a demon, and it would have been a more successful driven product than how it resulted at the end. But, like, the dialogue comes out pretty flawlessly, and that comes down to a lot of the actors and direction, too, that, like, uh, Amanda Seyfried's great in most things she does, but Megan Fox doesn't get a lot of credit, and I thought she led fairly well. Like, I, I don't understand... important to play, basically. This is, I mean, this is right up her alley. Uh, there's so many negative reviews on her being a slut and she sucks, which I think is absolutely baffling, because I don't know why sexual prowess would have anything to do with a performance in a motion picture, and I think, you know, it's besides the point, but it's just, she's supposed to be playing a very shallow... The, the whole point, I think, of the movie is exposing how everyone feels inside and how no one's willing to admit these things until something awful happens. And Jennifer is exposing these awful things, so you have to have kind of an awful character. And I don't think Megan Fox is an awful person whatsoever, but media-wise, she's constantly accused of being shallow and money-driven, so this is a character that really represents how the media makes her seem. So here... I'm doing it for you. It's almost insulting, you know, the well, media. Okay. I will compare this to another film that people have compared it to before in the past, which is Ginger Snaps, which kind of has a similar sort of thing going on. About Could have picked that for the show, too. But I think Ginger Snaps is slightly more successful with the horror elements of their story. I think that movie works a little bit bat- better. 
but I also don't think it's written as well as far as character wise as Jennifer's body. So if you could take those two movies and cross them over, I think you could have like an excellent horror kind of comedic, whatever the hell you wanted to do with it. I think it would just be a more engaging story. Ginger's body. I dig it. They made three fucking Ginger Snaps movies. Why not? I don't think I've ever seen the last one. I'm pretty sure I've seen it. Like it's been on and I've witnessed it, but I've never actually watched it, which that there's a, it takes place in like feudal England or medieval times or something like that. Pretty sure it's probably going to be Canada and like the 18 somethings because it's a Canadian movie series. Yeah. It's, it's just like, it's a weird, like, why would you do like a weird prequel this way? Why would you take it so far in the past? Why not? What else is there to do, you know? How the werewolf curse got started in the first place, I don't think I care why a curse gets started. But Jennifer's Body is probably the weakest film of tonight. We also I'd get a say. surprise Ginger Snaps 3 review. What, what, go ahead and give us a rating for Ginger Snaps 3 now that you've... I, it's been so long since I've seen it, I couldn't give it a definitive review. I saw it in like 2004. I've never uh, seen it, but I'm going to go ahead and say three stars just... Because you don't like it. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to say that, you know? Well, I would give Jennifer's Bodies probably three, three and a half, somewhere in there. Yeah. It's not a bad rating. I'd give it three and a half literally because it tried so damn hard. And everyone in it's great. It's pleasant to watch. Like, you don't finish it with a bad taste in your mouth or a meh. It's got a, I like the ending. It pretty much served its point. You get what it started with. Everyone's wrapped up and uh, it's all right. Like, it's just not a, a right home about movie. But again, it took place majorly in a school with high school people. And I don't know. We don't talk about a lot of new things on Death by DVD, and this is definitely not new anymore, but <laughs> well, it's, it's it was made in the last 20 years. And as far as horror films, they haven't improved in 10 years, and at least like Jennifer's body has a voice to it. And when I saw it, this, it definitely has a voice. I, I saw this in 2009, and I, I definitely did not like this movie and just thought it was stupid, probably because it was 2009 and I was still one of the characters in the movie, and that tends to happen when you don't like something because it hits too close to home. So now looking at it from a, a far back point, being able to stand and appreciate it for what it is, it's pretty solid. I would like to see Diablo Cody take another stab, pun intended, at the horror genre. I think she's really, really capable, and I see something like this might be out my ass but i could see her capable of something like hereditary maybe not that i don't want to say bland because hereditary is not bland but I, you know what i mean not that something quiet. not that classical we'll just put it that way yeah yeah well i don't know if she's interested in writing characters that are like just kind of like i don't want to say because i mean i I love Hereditary, and Bland is a bad choice, but I mean it in the atmospheric manner, that the movie doesn't have jump scares, it's not loud, it's not rock and roll, and Diablo Cody's a very yes. rock and roll person. Her her atmosphere is very, even like something like Juno, it's very live wire, it's very sharp, and it doesn't have soft, smoothed edges, and Hereditary is a very soft movie when you're watching it, even palette-wise. It's very calming, which is, you know, works against what is happening in the movie. So it's a cool atmosphere. And I just think she's very loud. So it wouldn't work. She's quite way that. more punk rock than hereditary is. Yeah. Yeah. That's just basically what, I mean, that's, that's the only way to really put it. So I guess uh, Jennifer's body, we both give it a three and a half where I guess we're, it's your turn. You got to serve this ball. Oh, sweet. Now I have to remember what I picked. All right. You got, um, well, you got, I, I don't know how to even. Oh, give okay. You I remember. 
Um, we'll talk about a movie that came out in 1988 that now has gotten to a wee bit problematic. Like, Ooh, that's a little cringy now. That I mean, this takes us back to the last time that we decided to half-ass use schools as a reason to do a death by DVD show, and we did the whole spring break thing and found out all those fun college movies from the 80s are pretty fucking rapey and not acceptable anymore. <laughs> And this, this one's not so rapey. It's well, it's got some rapey elements to it, but it's mostly just this is part of the reason that there's a problem with society. Not this movie, but the behavior exhibited in this yes. movie is why society has a fucking problem. And it's because it's called out 1998 for Christ's sakes. Yeah, by no means is or this 88. movie the problem, but the behavior, you know, Christian Slater's character. This is what's wrong with the world. That character is a psychopath yes. and the world is filled with roaming fucking rabid psychopaths at large carrying guns at Walmart. Now we will talk about Heather's and Heather's is a movie. I've always Michael loved. Lehman and Daniel Waters. And it's the dynamic duo. It's a very humorous film. Uh, and as I was saying earlier with Diablo Cody, yeah, like for 1988, this was kind of in her wheelhouse, um, sort of the same sort of rise sense of humor to it. And it's, you know, it's kind of a classic comedy at this point. Now, getting into the more troublesome story elements of kind of the problems with Heather's. Like, one of the writer's characters is fine. Um, most of the characters in the film are fine. Where you get problematic is J.D., played by Christian Slater, who I always thought was a cool motherfucker when I was a kid. Just like the- uh, That's cool. funny you bring that up, though, because I think that's most people's thought when they go back and they think about Heathers that they just kind of remember the rock and roll aspect and he wore all black and he was a bit of a rebel, a James Dean type and it's young Christian Slater. So you just assume that that's the general point of the movie is these outcasts falling in love. And if you haven't watched it in a while, you go back and examine Heathers on the, uh, the old fucking surgery board. It is just like a code of what to avoid with in men. Like this should be <laughs> like, instead of health class, when you're fucking in the eighth grade and they t- teach you about development and sex ed, they should show chicks Heathers and just like this all through the rest of school, avoid this behavior. Just stay the fuck away from this for the rest of your life. And then show it to the boys class as a guide of what not to do. Like that, this would be great education. And going back, like rewatching this film after having not seen it in quite a number of years, and really kind of looking at it through a lens, I like at first it was like, okay, I remember Christian Slater was always like really cool in this, and I always thought he was like a super badass in this movie. And then you start seeing some of his actions and go, okay, like he's a little bit crazy and he's definitely crazy. And then he gets into the murder and all that stuff. Then and it's it like, becomes, he's a psychopath. Well, at first I was like, wow, this movie, like I did for all these years where they kind of glorifying this, this rebel attitude. And then the movie progresses and it really does become about that issue in itself. They do answer the question in the film. And I was like, okay, because when I writer at a certain point, when she, figures out how crazy the motherfucker is like she gets and she breaks up with him she tries to go away and he immediately like gets fucking rapey with her and like is like trying to force um force her to kiss him and all these things and then he's going to get back at her by like killing people and like maybe killing her or blah 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 and it's just like okay so this is like this is 
what I, they're not really like they've been buttering Christian Slater the entire in the time. film. They do show what a fucking complete piece of shit he is within the film. Sure, he's it's still humorous, and he's still trying to be humorous. Well, they the film, butter but it up so you don't know the direction it's coming from. You get this yeah. character that you somewhat can be sympathetic with until these actions finally are exposed. You're not a rebel. Film. She says it in the movie. She goes, you're not a rebel. You're a fucking sociopath. And yeah, that's the problem is he yeah. is a sociopath. And like commenting a little bit more on our culture about young dudes in like high school who I'm a rebel and I'm punk rock and fuck all this. I mean, look at the news the last like three weeks of how many dudes are getting arrested for stockpiling weapons. And like, well, that's not even like I'm a young dude attitude hmm? though. That's not even just like a young person thing though. I mean, a lot of this behavior is being exhibited by five. I mean, this is young to me. This same behavior is being exhibited by, you know, politicians, by people all over the world in high ranking offices. This is, you know, businessmen and people on the streets and teachers are acting this way. That this lunacy is is widespread, almost viral. It's like the fucking crazies. People just are starting to act weird because it's like, oh, well, the president said I'm allowed to hate people because they came from a different country now. So they just go out with like a fucking KKK shirt or start posting about it on the internet or try to figure out how to rile up a situation because now it's something that you can acceptably, acceptably get away with in public. Well, if you look at all their manifestos, it's all the same bullshit. Like now we're moving into this white supremacy thing of being the reason, but ultimately what the reason is, is I want to impact something and I want to be remembered well, it's, it's like sociopath the whole, fucking attitude. The, right, the Joker it's the serial fetish. killer culture almost. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, the Guy Fox thing. It's the dudes who watched The Dark Knight and just went, Heath Ledger is such a badass. And I think Heath Ledger did an awesome performance in that. The guys why that would you like to be backwards. that? Why would you want to be the guy who wants to watch the world burn? That's it, It's just been so shitty to me the whole time. And I'm, it's just nothing's ever been fair. Yeah, life is never going to be fair for anyone at any time, but I'm going to get back at everything and everyone for it. Like, fuck off with that goddamn ass. You didn't get what you wanted. But that's what is accepted, that type of behavior when it's seen by people and you're watching TV and you see your leader throw infantile rants on the internet and and make these claims that don't even exist or have no base to their facts or logic, you feel that if that's acceptable, then you can act that way. So if you have some non-logic-based fact about why you're going to go shoot up a fucking place for no absolute reason outside of the fact that you're a goddamn sociopath, these warning signs have been seen and no one did anything about it, is because you felt it was accepted. It's now okay to do this. Well, I mean, it breaks down to one phrase I heard someone in my life say once, and I'm just like, okay, that's where the problem lies. If I can't be famous, I'll be infamous. Well, what a fucking thing to aspire to, man. You just, you don't care. You just want your life to matter. No one's life matters. Guess what? Da Vinci won't be remembered in a fucking thousand years. It'll be fucking gone. Everybody is going to get forgotten at one point. Look at how, like, the characters in the Bible have changed over like the two like, thousands of years and how like all these stories morph and change into different things. Your time period is not important. Think along how like, well, names might be remembered, but 
I mean, can we even, I'm sure that there are many people off the top of their head that could discuss this, but the average person I don't think could tell you the life and times of Leonardo da Vinci even right now. These things are being forgotten. Time periods and how people existed a thousand years ago are not taught. People don't recognize. on history. You were 80 years of thousands of years. Who cares? Oh, look at the education system in general and what people are taught. I mean, you're even taught in schools now that the settlers came over to America and they had Thanksgiving and the Indians gave up all their land and decided to live happily ever after. Like, that's generally what's taught in schools in the United States these days, that there's absolutely, you know, the, the Vietnam War. We went over there and we there was some problems and we came back. Like, that's not even really recognized teaching, yet alone uh, the genocides in places like Cambodia or uh, Idi Amin. Just, like, there are the things that are in our lifetime that are even completely and absolutely forgotten. I mean, remember that spaceship that blew up a couple years ago? Most people don't. What do you mean a spaceship blew up a couple years ago? Yeah, man, like, like a couple years ago, this fucking spaceship blew up, remember? No, no, yeah, it did, I'm telling you. And did. that's what J.D.'s problem is and Heather's is... His father is a bit of a sociopath himself. He killed his mother. He's always been a figure a in charge made his behavior it. seem acceptable. So he began acting that way because it's what he was seeing. I'm not saying everything's absolutely taught nature over nurture, but in most instances and in these instances happening now, I definitely believe it's because someone has made this activity seem okay. And that it's being uh, a, a remembered in time as a rebel against society and i'm rebelling against the ways of my time essentially the same thing in the movie you're just a sociopath you're not a fucking rebel and at this point it has a lot to do with things i can't have because culture has changed and grow up culture is very easy to blame anybody for anything but at the root of most problems it's yourself your fucking problem that's yeah like think about the way you are not even you are not even that it's your problem. I mean, your problem, anything in your life is always directly yours because that's in your reality. That's your movie, essentially. But all problems almost always can be solved by yourself because it's something to do with you. And that's like solving that problem does not entail picking up a weapon and pretending like you're some fucking like starter of a goddamn race war or any of the rest of that shit. You're just being a manipulative little shit is what you're being. Grow the fuck up. It's not about you. It's never been about you and it never will be about you. Find somebody who will make you a part of their life and get the fuck over it. You're just a pog in society and you are literally buying into everything you're against. The Zionist occupied government zogs taking over. They're going to, the world's being run by. So you're just going to go out and feed into all this bullshit and do and accomplish what? What a waste of life and energy. What an absolute waste of everyone that was harmed. You are just insignificant. And at the end of the day, they turn Thor into a woman. And that's just the last straw. Goddamn Are, Are you serious? This is what's pissing you off. Is that like because they're not making a Thor movie geared to your demographic? Grow the fuck up. But isn't that alarming? Grow isn't it alarming a- that a Marvel Comics movie, their demographics fan base for Thor is this mad about this? What are you guys identifying? Are you walking around with your Mjolnirs and your old Viking logos tattooed on you, hiling, listening to fucking Screwdriver, jerking off to Thor? Like, is that really a thing? 
is that is that really what culture we're at now that neo-nazis fantasize over what's happening in the next thor and fucking incredible hulk movie uh it's just baffling we live in such an odd time i read this thing a couple weeks ago that the world actually ended in 2012 and this is like a mirror reflection and that's why everything feels so weird and is just so absolutely insane that we've are you know stuck in the alternative universe you know string theory sort of thing i like to think that because it makes sense south park started going downhill around 2012 too and that's fishy well i mean it's just You've got to get over this fact that continue life in general, humanity is a living organism in itself. So all these things that you don't like that are shifting in the world, you're not ever going to be able to stop it because it literally lives in itself. It's kind of crazy, though, that like we're gearing up moving without you. Well, like we're gearing up for the 20s and it looks like a world war is going to break out Um, like weird art like Dada's blooming all over again. Expressionism's coming out. Film is completely changing. Uh, prohibition on marijuana's ending. It's getting, you know, we're almost repeating history full-fledged going back into the, the previous. I mean, years are a couple off with prohibition, but it's kind of funny, just even down to generationally, things repeat themselves, just down to fucking style and influence and how people live their lives. It's called... Go with the flow, assholes. Time is a flat circle, and all of these things will completely, complete, repeat will complete themselves until time just stops. Like fads and fashion things are going to keep coming back. Bell bottoms are going to get popular again. Fucking hair metal is going to come back. All this shit's just going to keep repeating and floating because it's just time. It's what happens. Nobody knows. Well, people don't know what to do, so they just rip off what happened in the 70s because it happened so long ago, people don't remember it anymore. So you can just steal. Here is the most important piece of philosophy that has ever been uttered by a human being, and it's Bruce Lee, for fuck's sakes. Oh, I know what you're going to do. you got to do the impersonation. I'm not doing that impersonation. (laughs) It's so good. You sound just like him. He becomes the teacup. This is better than the new Tarantino. (laughs) <laughs> you pour water into a teacup it becomes the teacup be like water my friend be like water yeah just be like water go with it a little bit and just see where things go you have, like have to adapt that is how life works bruce lee probably fight. said that well where you can't fight like... progress i'm sorry you just can't it's an asinine fucking well, you can that's the thing that's the well you can fight it but you're gonna lose every yeah. time there's no way, like, it's, you're literally fighting life. You're fighting a, a direction that life is naturally going. You can't stop it. You can't go back to the 40s. It's non-existent. Bruce Lee probably said that quote while wearing $3,000 sunglasses and in, like, $2,000 sweatpants and giant gold chains on. Be like Wata, you know. He became the tracksuit. He did. Which, all of this makes a Heathers. great segue into oh we have to rate heathers but all of this still works with the segue oddly perfectly where we're heading into with my next pick but what's your what's your rating on heathers it's a five still still a fairly important film although most people don't need to watch it oh wow people wanted us to argue more but here we go agreeing again that yeah it's a five (laughs) it's i got you know i got no argument almost universally great fucking movies 
Yeah, for the most part, everything. I mean, and I really will go out of my way with Jennifer's Body because it is a strong movie and it is enjoyable to watch. It's yeah. that, it really isn't universally great, but it's pretty fucking good. It's good, but yeah, I'm not debating that at all. I think, like I said, it's like a three, three and a half out of five, which is a good rating. I mean, that's literally like two and a half is mediocre, and then anything over that, when you're on the good side, it might not be excellent, but it, it's good. Well, this next movie was written and directed by people whose names I'm going to say just one time. Just oh God. one time. Yeah, Kenji Fukasaku. That's the director. And the writer is Koshun Takami. Uh, it's based on a novel. It's called Battle Royale from 2000. One of Quentin Tarantino's favorite movies, if that says anything for you, because he lifted actors for, uh, I think, Kill Bill Volume 1. I think so. Doesn't matter. It, it trusts driving into the future and what we've been talking about. In the future, the Japanese government takes one class every year and forces them into a battle royale against one another. Only one student can live. If no one completes by the end of three days, they're all blown up with this neck thing they've got on that listens to all their words, transmits where they're at, and then lets them know areas to avoid or they'll blow up. Why is this happening? Because the youth has gotten rude and doesn't respect their fucking elders. So now they just kidnap once a year, a class, and pit fight them against each other, which I, I hate saying kind of makes sense, but it, 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 is, it somewhat makes sense. But when this movie came out, school shootings wasn't really a widespread thing, which it unfortunately is. And it's kind of funny thinking of people growing up in a generation where it's just something you shrug off, like, oh, there's another school shooting today. And that's becoming how it is. And culturally, Battle Royale has been banned fucking everywhere. Finally, not the United States, even though it's toted to have been banned in the United States. But I think it was even recently pulled from Germany that this movie depicts children committing gratuitous acts of violence against one another for almost the entertainment of you know the, the government or the teacher that has been wronged in this situation the classes i believe fourth grade teacher is the host of the battle royale games well like i watched battle royale and it had been talked up to me for a very long time about being this very intense movie about kids killing each other and this this kind of game and when Sport. I saw it, it was still fairly recent. I saw it in like 2005 or 2006, so it was still yeah, kind of. It was on like 2002, maybe 2001. Uh, it it was definitely talked up a lot more, and you know, again, being in a culture pre the the reality we're living in, pre this just vicious, awful reality that we live in, this was much more shocking. You know, this was something that you couldn't even really talk about because it was banned. And the second somebody else looked it up, you know, you would get in trouble for it. So it was one of those last generation edgy movies that you would hunt down and try and find from the back of a magazine. And when I initially watched it, I didn't get it because everybody who had talked it up were kind of viewing it from the wrong lens. They kept just telling me how intense it was. And then I watch them like this is really long and not very intense. I mean, it does have some scenes of violence, but it's not. Crazy, I mean, what, 42, I think 42 kids are killed in the movie, and, I mean, you see pretty much all of them, but for the most part, a lot of it's uh, just, you know, machine gun fodder, or somebody gets a knife to the head. It's not that it's great, like, super arterial. It's just not long, spray. lingering shots of gore and battle damage. People die, but it's like, you got Well, that's the terminology and... that I think most people will, like, they confuse this with arterial blood spray genre movies, and it's got some of it, like, some of the violence is very hyper-realistic and very, very bloody, but for the most part, it's, uh... It's it's the story being told, and that's the point. You know, it's driving on a vehicle completely different than the visual. Yeah, and that's the thing I didn't 
really grasp the first time. I just watched him like I just didn't like I don't understand why this is such a big deal. Okay, I, it's just it's kids killing kids, man. Yeah, I didn't. And then I sat down and watched it a lot more closely, like years later. And then I really started to pick up because I was missing a lot of that interpersonal story stuff that was going on with the students because it kept flashing around and I was like kind of half paying attention and going to all these flashbacks and stuff like that. And I just didn't understand how any of it this really too, but it was really just about the emotions these students had with each other. Well, this too, like, especially when the, the era that we're discussing that we first saw it and finding the same version of somebody else was kind of difficult. There was a lot of different cuts. And even now, uh, using streaming, like I found this on Roku recently and had a rewatch of it, possibly for this show. Who knows? Not I. And there's like three different cuts. So you can still probably I don't know what's definitive anymore. Like I've not really kept up and I'll be the first to admit by my obvious statement of only pronouncing people's names once. Not a big Japanese guy. I don't know a lot about Japanese horror. And it's something I've meant to invest more time into because I like Battle Royale. I like Takashi Miike. I like what I've seen. It's just I don't know the titles. I don't know where to get into it. I, you know, thankfully, uh, things like Shudder have a lot of good selections when it comes to non-American horror films, and There's that's pleasant. There's so much foreign stuff on Shudder. There's, it's mostly foreign stuff at this point. I really enjoy that, but at the same time, I don't know. There's there's just so much more to horror streaming that I would like to be more well-rounded. Like, I just wish the old Shout Factory app would come back the way it used to be. That was oh, it's back. Fake. It's back, but it's not as good. Mm, and it's a little uh, I don't like the design of it personally, but uh, I don't care for the design. And there's some stuff. Uh, a lot of the commentaries are gone. The Shout Factory app just used to be kind of a, a, a cove of fun treasure and, and fun things. But Battle Royale. Mo OK, so I think I mean, where were we? We were going on about the time and well, Battle Royale for yeah. me was like when I started to really get how all the interpersonal relationships were connected and how, like, because they were just kids in a class to me the first time. Okay, they're killing each other, so what? But they're showing all these flashbacks of how these people really interacted with each other while they were in school before all of this happened. And how, like, some people are killing their crush. Some people, like, they're really, like, going into weird, bizarre places with their relationships. And that's the interesting part of it, is when it gets down to it, like, all the sadness that's going on around it. I and mean, even when you get to the end... It's um, their teachers, even just like a, a very sad character who just. It's very hopeless. Story. Yeah, it's all very hopeless, and even so, like the sequel is like kind of a crazy mess at times. Uh, the sequel's bad shit. Yeah, but it it's just it's dealing with a lot of complex issues, um, and doing it, it just it's just not in a very American way. <laughs> it's very. Well, I think the big the concept these things are handled, which it's hard for me to interpret Japanese films. It's just not so like, cause the subtitles just don't do it for me. I think you kind of hit the, the nail on the head with the big subject here is just loneliness and it translates in how many different ways and every character is feeling it one way or another. You know, the teacher gets killed and stands back up to get the phone call from his daughter just to say he's not coming home to be rejected and told he's not good enough and then die again. Everyone's lonely one way or another. There's nothing that will solve it, dying together or killing for it. There's just loneliness in the world and you have to accept it. And I think that's kind of the universal sigh with this thing. Like, everybody is lonely respect your elders <laughs> that's a good you know because that's driven through the whole movie like if you guys weren't little shits this wouldn't have happened and one of the things that i mean 
you can call me racist or whatever, but one of the things I will, that, you fucking bigot. Thank you. That always is hard for me to deal with, with especially Asian cinema, is I'm not familiar with a lot of um, names, like Asian names. So when you have characters who have like names that I can't pronounce. Oh, yeah, everybody time, has four names now. Well, I. The problem is I can't keep up with the characters because you're giving me a character name and I'm like, I don't remember who that was because Bob, I understand, and Tom, and I know that character is Bob. But when you have Japanese names, they all kind of start running together for me. So it's just it's hard for me to really watch a lot of Asian cinema because of that reason. It's just I'm not immersed in that culture like a lot of other people are. And I just I mean, I, I completely plead ignorance to it just i'm just very ignorant to a lot of the culture so a lot of their films don't resonate with me this one does this one does i thought the host uh the korean film the host was a really good movie old boy you know, there's things that i wouldn't I call you a racist i'd call you a xenophobe well it's just it's more of just ignorance to the all of it more <laughs> than anything i just i don't understand a lot of the cultural gap stuff too like well, that is a big part of it with me, though. Because it's just, I don't understand that culture. Oh, that is a big part of it for me, too. When you get into a lot of J-horror, a lot of it is associated around a high school-level or college-level Japanese males. And if you aren't a part of that culture, a lot of that's just nothing you can relate to. So there is a lot of difficulty bridging the gap from the film to reality just so you can ride the vehicle, pretty much. Like... And it gets that. I mean, it can be that way with any other cultural film. It doesn't just have to be Japanese. It can be difficult watching a German movie because if it's culturally representative about being a fucking German and you're from Wisconsin, the two things you know might confuse one another. Well, even with something like German, I understand Dieter as a name or Klaus or like I can like I can kind of separate those names. When you get into Japanese, it's just. I am lost on all the I, Kakihara from fucking. Um, you remember that one, Ichi the Killer? Yeah, from Ichi. Like, I can remember that, and I can remember like a couple ones, but it's Akira. just. Akira. They all start blending together for me, so it's hard for me to keep a lot of the uh, situations going on, like, really straight. You're so. just a simple Western devil, a blue eyed Yankee devil. <laughs> But I do enjoy Battle Royale for what it is. On a second viewing, I really appreciate it a hell of a lot more than I ever have before. I think you got to watch it and let it sit and resonate and take the graphic violence for whatever it is and then go back and reevaluate what you had seen and look for, you know, it's a two watcher. Sometimes you got to watch something twice and this is maybe one of those essential slam it back in the old VHS. Well, nobody has one of those. If you have this on VHS, you probably have a lot of free time on your hand, I'm going to imagine. <laughs> But you uh, probably, uh, do you have a rating? Are we we still slamming that into the ground? Yeah, I will go. I'm gonna go five. I'll go five again. I think it's an excellent movie. Yeah, can't argue. This is. <laughs> we'll figure out a way to argue. You know, like I guess one day we'll let you pick everything, and just I'll I'll get blindsided when you and, when you get to the, the Sandman episodes when Hank gets to feel the pain. Then we'll start arguing. Uh, there's, I'm sure, going to be some questionable content that I'm going to get pissed off over coming up sometime <laughs> soon. I think the hardest part is, you know, all right, it's back to school. So most of our audience, we're going out on a leg here, is of, like, you know, parent age and has children. So, you know, you got to listen to something in the car. We're just trying to make it 
I don't know, tied together instead of the police academy thesis happening regularly. Because I got to tell you, if, if it was just like my control, that's what it would be. Like, fuck it. Let's do why haven't we done all the Critters movies? We did Tiny Terrors. Let's do every Critters movie. We will. You can't get through four, motherfucker. We're going to have to wait. Well, like next year, we'll drop that at the same time. It'll be a tie-in episode. Oh, my God. Oh, it's going to be right. so bad for you, dude. Do you it's need a hint? Be so bad. I know what. It, no, I know what my next film okay, is. Okay, I was gonna say if you I need a hint, because yeah. it's my favorite film on the list. On Joseph list. and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. No, it's not. We're talking about a black coat, a black coat's daughter from Oz Perkins, and I will talk about your heritage, Oz, because it matters. It's, it's Norman Bingham Coat's frock. It's Anthony Perkins' son, and he's a hell of a fucking director because he made Black Coat's Daughter, which is, I think, a remarkable movie. I, I prefer to introduce him, and I, I have a feeling I think um, Oz Perkins would enjoy being introduced this way much more than yours as uninterested guy from Not Another Teen Movie. If you saw Not Another Teen Movie, he appears throughout of it playing my favorite character, the uninterested guy, who is generally uninterested in all the things that are going on around him. He doesn't seem to really give a shit whenever it's brought up who his dad is, because it seems like and and the few interviews I have watched with him, it's regularly brought up. You know, your dad's Anthony Perkins, like he came downstairs like every fucking morning and like looked his kids dead in the eyes was like, don't you forget I was in psycho. Don't, Don't forget about it. All right. You and your brother. Don't ever forget that I was in psycho like Tuesday nights made them watch it. This is the German cut. Like, I don't watch think... Psycho 3. I directed this one. Look yeah. at that bees on scene. <laughs> I don't think it was a massive part of their lives and had anything to do with him making the Black Coat's daughter. But it's really kind of funny how it's just like, obviously, you can't break that association because you kind of look like your dad and you work in Hollywood. So people know who you are. But it's just Hollywood, baby. That's just how it's going to work. It, I feel this largely represents nothing from Psycho or nothing, you know, from oh, no, it has, it has nothing to do with Oz Perkins yeah. as a filmmaker. He's his own filmmaker and goddamn, he's a, he's a fucking filmmaker. Pretty swell. And Hank told me some interesting news before we started recording that he is not a fan of this movie. And I'm like, motherfucker, this is like great. What are you talking about? How do you hate this? This yeah, is like I an listened, excellent film. I, I actually listened to him talk about how he just kind of felt the movie was meh and just was, you know, jaw dropped like fuck off. Like, I hate everything I do. I get it. Any painting I work on, anything I write, I absolutely hate it. It's garbage. This show, ah, I hate it. But this was just thick. It was spicy. It was zesty. It was all the good coin terms that American restaurants use. Beefy, charbroiled. It was just great. Um, Charbroiled. That might have not been the, you know, okay. So we're tooting its horn a little bit. When I don't you think, think about a director for this film, though, when you think about another filmmaker who possibly you know, like what a movie like it feels like, what other director would you bring to mind? Because immediately one comes to my mind. Uh, I would say Jeremy Solnier. Nope. Lynch. Joe Lynch. No, David Lynch. Oh, I thought you meant like a recent filmmaker. No, 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 no. It feels like a David Lynch movie to me. 
It's got a, a Lynchian aspect. I hate that word Lynchian. It just sounds so up its own ass, but I guess that's delivering what the point is. I just don't see it. Maybe color and just tone wise, but I feel it's much more fluent. I feel it has a, a better beginning, middle and an end than something. I mean, maybe old Lynch like Eraserhead or well, Blue it, Velvet, but I wouldn't call it like color palette wise. Definitely. But sound design wise, think about Eraserhead and think about this film and the sound design, well, the radiator. Movies, yeah. The music and just the the ambient sound of what's going on at the school. Like it's all very hollow sounding. It's all very, very uh, like isolating. It makes you feel alone, like alone in this giant monster of a building, which is what the movie's about being alone. And you even have kind of a lost highway, a character changing who they are slightly, like changing their face almost. So, I mean, there's just different comparisons I pulled to like Lynch movies in general. It felt kind of like a, a David Lynch film to me. Not entirely, because David Lynch is not that interested in fucking. I can sick. understand it atmospherically, but yeah, no, this atmospherically, movie, yes. This movie's pretty straightforward, I think. It's funny reading a lot of people's questions where they think it's more of a psychological thing, and it's like comparing it to something we talked about recently, Black Swan, a movie that is not whatsoever about witches or demonic possession or anything of that sort. It's about people's mental strength and capabilities and pressure and life and things like that. This is an absolute fucking supernatural movie. Like it, oh, yeah. there's, It's a scary movie. The demon's real. It's not this whole made-up back feature. I felt that that was pretty represented. Well, like, one of the things that... And it has your nemesis in it. Your nemesis is a star. Fucking Rimmar. Brings me great joy. Um, But a lot of people have brought up the fact that... Just uh, full spoilers to this film. When the character of... Joan... uh, Joan, well, Joan, what's her original name? Cat, Cat. Um, she kills their daughter, and the whole story is told out of sequence. And you know, if you haven't seen this movie, you definitely need to watch where you listen to us talk about it. But she looks like a different person as a like ten years later, on the nine year anniversary of of the murder she committed, and the person she murdered's parents would know exactly who she was, and blah blah blah. But if you look at the scene where Catherine is going through um, Rose's things, she's almost coveting Rose. She's like touching her photo. She's playing with her hairbrush. It's almost like she wants to become Rose. And I'm not so sure in myself that that wasn't part of this like union she makes with Satan that she wants not to even to like become Rose. her, but to become wanted and to, to have. Yes. Something. Well, because she, Emma Roberts actually looks like the actress who plays Rose almost. So like, even James Ramar says, you look a lot like my daughter. And I think that's totally on purpose that they change the actress. Like I that. feel that you're also led to be given a little bit of belief that Kat's parents or family doesn't quite really care about her, that she's not a you know, traditionally super loved child. And that's you know, the voicemail she leaves is so questioning and so odd that she doesn't even really know what to say when she gets the phone calls from the entity she doesn't know if it's her father or what to say so i feel that you're dealing with a very lonely character she's a freshman at this all-girls catholic school she doesn't know what to accept she doesn't want to be there she's just afraid so she wants to be accepted at any right so if it's becoming more like rose it's whatever she can do to become that way but i think more or less than anything it's not so much possession that she is accepting literally she doesn't want to be alone anymore 
return and this entity tells her shows her her parents died and gives her an offering to you know be happy and so she wanted to connect to that well before you even get fully into it at the beginning of the film she has this dream that her parents die in a car crash or whatnot and she gets the phone call and all that but when she talks to the priest before he goes something's in the room she's watching it and smiling well, she she's talking to him and talking about well can i stay here my parents aren't coming they died well they're not dead you don't know that blah blah but she's like honestly looking, but look for, in that scene. looking to him looking to the priest for but comfort he, he denies and like, her and she begins looking off to the corner and smiles yes. and that's where he asks what's wrong and that's the the entity has opened itself up to her to let her know that it's safe well, she is looking for a way out because she can't be alone. She knows her parents are dead and she can't be alone. Well, can I stay at the school with you? Will you be my dad? And he denies her that. And then right next to her is this demon. And she's like, well, will you be my dad? Yes, I will. I will never leave you. And we will always be together. You will never have to be lonely again. And that's what she's ultimately as a character is all about is just and the that character, terrifying fear of loneliness. Until the end of the movie, I feel, doesn't really even have to deal with any, any of the loneliness, that they lose their parents and are given this comfort of this entity and do everything to please that and to be successful for that and then lose it and it's taken away from them painfully until they wait nine years to make it all right. And then in the end, they're finally su succumbed with their absolute loneliness. Their parents, the entity they've cherished, it's all gone. There's nothing. Everything is nothing, and it's just very tragic. I found the ending to be one of the most upsetting parts because I oh, looked yeah, at it almost really terrible. Well, I took it almost as a love story. You know, the things that you're willing to do to not be alone, the things that you're willing to commit, the atrocities that you're willing to walk through to not be alone in life. And, you know, there might not be the most positive choices, but to fulfill that void, people will walk completely over fire or cut off three, four, five heads, five heads in total. Uh, five beheadings in total. That's a great count. That's uh, should always. I mean, you can't hate us for spoilers because Joe Bob starts his show off with how many people die in the movie, counting them <laughs> off. So, fuck off with your spoiler hatred. Uh, five heads. That's a good count. It's the things you go through to. I don't know, fulfill yourself. And sometimes at the end of the day, there's nothing you can do to fill that cup and be like water. You're just alone and devastated by the loneliness because the world is a harsh, cruel, lonely place. And Emma Roberts at the end, I mean, Karen and Shipka is great. I think that's the new Tabrina, Sabrina, the teenage witch, which I actually, which I, yeah. I'm pretty sure the producers saw this film when they made that choice. Cause when I saw the new Sabrina, I'm like, really, you chose her. All right. You've definitely seen black Coat's daughter. Well, now seeing black Coat's daughter, I'm excited to actually check out the new Sabrina season one, just to see, because I've heard it's fairly dark and interesting. And if you're willing to watch stranger things, I don't see why Sabrina would be such a odd line to cross, but it's getting a lot of hate from the horror scene. The horror scene doesn't like it. So I guess it's, uh, blase to talk about it because it's not accepted it's a kid's show which i don't think it's geared toward children whatsoever but it's just the the movie emphasizes overwhelming loneliness and it's just like a fucking leonard cohen song this wailing and a legit wailing screaming yeah it's just so sad it's and a leonard hollow. cohen song yeah and it's but I really take Joe it. Satan. but that's what she did and i and i if you look at it from the perspective of love Okay, some people got hurt, and I completely get that. But in your own heart, just thinking about things that you have loved that might have been poison that you still have love for or thoughts of happiness for, you do anything for love. You do anything for happiness. I feel and she so, did the unthinkable for it, yeah, not I, to be alone. 
I, I just felt so bad at the end of the movie, really. And that's re- what just because I watched this three fucking times in total. First time I watched it, I was getting ready to complain. I didn't really like it. I got to the ending. It hit me. OK, watched it again. And that's when I, you know, this again, this is the second movie on the list that watching more than once somewhat helps just to see the nuances. And there's a lot of clever things added in at like just uh, characters do certain things. One character not to completely spoil the whole thing, will use a payphone and has a certain amount of change and calls a certain number, and another character mimics and does similar actions to it, and these nuances aren't easily picked up on unless you're paying attention. And, you know, If you're looking at your phone the whole time, you're going to miss a lot of what I, you would refer to as more of the David Lynch aspects, which I get. I, I really, really get it. I just don't think it's like... I, I know uh, specifically one of Oz's favorite movies is Eraserhead. So the radiator, the sound quality, you know, there's definitely a, a lot of yeah. obvious comparisons there. I just didn't feel he went out of his way to make it like no, 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 sort of thing. That's not what I mean. I think Oz Perkins is a masterful storyteller. What he was able to do and take that lynching road of creating an atmosphere of the film was really encapsulate everything in this film in loneliness and really being able well, you just really the get- way a characterization of loneliness, I think, with every oh, single yeah. character. I mean, one character misses uh, one character's parents it's snowing constantly. Well, I mean, you've got the comparison of one character's parents possibly have died. It's it's made, I think, clear at the beginning of the movie. And the other oh, one tricked her parents into not coming so she could go talk to a guy that possibly got her pregnant. So both of these characters are dealing with just absolute fear and it's the reversal one is thinking life is coming to the world and she's not ready for it and the other one has accepted death has happened and she's not ready for it and is willing to do anything to not have that void well if you look at rose as a character and part of that thing of her of cat wanting to almost become her is even when she's faced with a super hard time in her life of possibly having an abortion she tells the guy or guy pregnant no don't even drive me because i don't think Rose is afraid of being alone. She's okay with being alone. I think that's what she's like wanting from Rose more than anything. And she never really gets it. She always is going to be that lonely girl um, who at one time maybe felt special through the eyes of some dominant sort of, whether it be a father figure or a satanic figure, she needs some. Well, they even ask though, like it's inquisitive because Rose comes back from the date and the other characters in bed and says, you know, you, this is what you did. You you had your parents come a different day so you could go on a date. And Rose says back, no, it wasn't a date. And they have that interaction of it's too late anyhow. You were told to to watch me. That's what Mr. Gordon said, that you were supposed to watch me and you went out and did this. That she's become non-sympathetic at this point because it's voided her needs. Mm-hmm. And um, just the, like... One of the things I thought was very important and another thing that reminded me of Eraserhead is how much they use the phone and they use that ring of that phone. They turn it up really loud. So each time the phone rings, they let it ring like three, four times in the scene. And that's a technique that really works in filmmaking is you have this loud, obnoxious ring. And even at your own house, it's like, I've got to answer the phone. Somebody's got to answer this phone. Somebody's got to, it just keeps ringing. We got to answer the phone. And you're like waiting, Carrie. building up that tension of answer the fucking phone, please. You're standing right there. And she eventually answers the phone. But that's a way of building this tension and really kind of breaking out of the 
albeit quiet but very atmospheric background because there's not a lot of music in this film at all. It's mostly ambient background noise for, yeah, almost 100%. Well, it's like that high-pitched, almost Hitchcock knife-stabbing sound that plays throughout Carrie that just is grating on your nerves. It's a little bag-of-tricks thing, but it worked really successfully. And then the lack of soundtrack and the ambience is what gives you that... lack of color, even. Well, that's kind of almost like a Kubrick feeling with the shining of the loneliness and the impending doom creeping in as the cold and snow gets worse. And then you've got the characters sent out to go shovel to the earth. To the earth. And again, it's just, you know, this exposition shot of them out in the cold shoveling. Well, I mean, that like was interesting because a lot of people have gone uh, like asked, well, did her parents really die or not? Yes, they're dead because that's yeah. why the cop was there in the first place. He was coming to tell with the, the, the priest that, hey, your parents have died. So that was the whole point of the scene. I, like, but, so I don't know. I don't think a lot of people pay it. Well, that's, I mean, the entity, the demon, Satan, whatever you want to call it, shows her at the beginning. You know, she's shown in the dream and is allowed to see what's going on. So she knows when she goes to the principal's office because you're shown toward the end of the movie her again. Yeah, she's toward the end of the movie. You get the shots of her at, at the calendar. It shows you that it's the the day before. So she knows when she goes into the principal's office what's going on. She's already talked to this thing. She's just waiting to hear what other people have to say before she makes the decision of not being alone. And it's in the office because the, the priest asked, what, what made you laugh? What are you smiling at? And she's looking off to the corner because it made an offer to her. It was warmth. It was happiness. And then finally, at the end of the movie, she's just completely alone because they performed an exorcism. And specifically, you know, you can never come back. That mm-hmm. was the power that was put onto it. So even... This action of love was nothing, and sometimes, unfortunately, that's just how life is. No matter how hard you try, it doesn't work out that way. Well, I mean, even to compare this to something like Jennifer's body, they were able to take, which is essentially looks like a fucking bunny suit, and shoot it in a way that was mostly effective for not having a budget, of having this kind of shadowy shape and creating that sort of thing in jennifer's body you have all the special effects in the world yeah, frightening you- enough to remind you of a shape falling asleep in your room out of the corner of your eye that catches you you know that's really what is presented in the black coat's daughter is your own imagination is it real is it not what would pure evil look like jennifer's body is beyond even monster squad hokey well yeah and you have all the special effects and that this is all you come up with is a mouth with sharp teeth and like what they ended up doing and when you don't have those facilities at hand, you have to be creative. And they got very creative. They made what looks like a fucking bunny actually somewhat scary and somewhat yeah, but intimidating. Like, let's look at Donnie Darko again. Pretty scary fucking bunny. It's just taking some time to think about things. I think what works with the Black Coat's daughter significantly is how lonely you feel while you're experiencing the movie. And there's just the, the lack of cast Weak. has nothing to do with that. It's just how the atmosphere is. Which is, I guess, something that Oz hated. You know, he didn't get to film what was in his head. But regardless, this product that's been released is is pretty above average. I mean, this is a really spectacular thing. I think so. I think it's like one of the movies of the the last um, five years, at least. I mean, it's in there with Hereditary and uh, Mandy and a couple other films like Midsummer. All these different um, popular horror films are going on. Like, you all, everyone needs to watch this. When you watch these bad parent, like The Curse of Lorona or whatever that was, or 
another Annabelle movie. Like, that's not horror. This is horror. I mean, this is emotional horror. And what you're doing is seeing a bunch of people with CGI blacked out eyes and mouths and a lot of terrible ghost adventures footage, which just it's played out. But it doesn't have to be. You can still do stuff like this, like they did in Black Coat's Daughter. It's just how you handle it. And it's handled actually, very classically in this film. I actually found this to be scary. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's something that you really don't have or has a feature in modern horror anymore is dealing with fear. Even like Jennifer's body, there is no fear. There was no aspect to the movie. There was nothing that kept you hanging on the edge of your seat. Even in the thought of, like, halfway through The Black Coat's Daughter, you're left to decide if it's a psychological thriller or if she's, you know, sick or psychotic or what's going on. And they start showing you the symptoms of possession. She can't pray. Uh, she throws up all over the table. She calls the chick a cunt. And the realism is still there. You're still a little confused as to what's happening. She seems to know what's going to go on before it goes on. There's a level of fear of the unknown that really plays and works off of itself here. Yeah, and to be able to pull this off with no budget and be able to write engaging characters, almost no dialogue at all. And if I mean, it does have dialogue. It does have scenes where we talk, but it's told mostly through visual images. And well, the dialogue is very character characterizational because everyone that speaks almost speaks with their emphasis. So a weak character is very weak and shrill and hardly has dialogue as to where somebody that's sharp and more presented has, I don't know, a more abrasive touch to how they speak. So everyone plays off each other almost like a play, very small format. And that's the uh, like a testament to the writing of it and being able to use what you can and use it efficiently to create what you want to create. That's what a filmmaker should be able to do. A filmmaker doesn't need any money to do what they do. You can create a film with them. I mean, I understand there's inherent cost to all things, but for somebody who tells me that, well, I didn't have a budget to do this, this, or this, I have these grand ideas, then why did you write those grand ideas? Figure this out. Sit down and think about it. Think about what terrifies you and not just like what it's loneliness. That's what this movie is about. That's what's terrifying. And that's about the most it. terrifying aspect. Uh, and being able to appropriate that loneliness and make a film out of it with no money. I found the ending to be the most terrifying because it's when you're absolutely, truly left alone. And then you have to delve into what you just saw. And I mean, those moments between the last scream and the credits are, are pretty crucial for you to collect everything that you've composed and seen in your mind. And it's just one awful tragedy after the other, just and everyone's empty to be able to get these performances out of the actors in this film is also a feat of knowing how to control your actors, knowing when to go big and not go so big. I mean, Emma Roberts barely does anything in the film. She's like sallow the entire time. And then her last scene, she lets it all out. This is the time to get big. And you have to know that as a filmmaker, you have to know how to control your actors and, what they need to be doing in reference to the story you're trying to tell. And it does it expertly here. What's your rating for the black coat's daughter? Yes. Is it another five? It's another five. Slap me down and call me Sandy. I'm going to give it a five too. <laughs> Maybe Boy, we'll disagree on this last one. Slightly. I don't know. There's going to be a slight disagreement. Trust me. 
We'll see how the rating comes out with it. While we're discussing people's first movies, this is a much bigger budget guy. It's Ryan Johnson's first movie, Brick, from 2005, starring the amazing Joseph Gordon-Levitt. This essentially is a 1940s film noir. It's a Sam Spade detective novel set in an American high school with... I'm going to I'm going to say this is like my favorite dialogue out of any movie that we featured tonight. Just amazingly driven dialogue by Ryan Johnson delivered by the amazing dad. Everybody's amazing tonight. J.G.L. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, <clears throat> the kid from Third Rock from the Sun. And he was in uh, American History X briefly. I don't remember that. Oh, yeah, he was a little, little kid in that, wasn't he? He comes to visit with Ethan Supley and another Nazi, the uh, Derek Vinder, not Derek, the little brother. He was also in Halloween H2O. Yes, he was. <laughs> He's the hockey-playing kid that saves the day, or doesn't, at the beginning. No, of the he movie. gets killed. I'm yeah, pretty he sure killed. he does. Um, but yeah, like, I saw Brick a long time ago and completely forgot it even existed as a movie. I enjoyed it then, and then I rewatched it. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about this movie. It's still pretty enjoyable. Um, yeah, on mostly, all levels, like I really have no issue with any of the writing, any of the direction. Uh, the only slight issue I have is one character, and that's it. Who's the character? The pin. Oh, Lucas. Lucas Haas. I think he's great. I just think, you know, there's so much with this character, and the only little bit of development we get is this beach scene where he says half-heartedly, do you read Tolkien? I like his descriptions <laughs> of shit. So he dresses like a fucking vampire or like he's going to an Anne Rice convention and all we get out of it is he reads Lord of the Rings. That's not a wholesome explanation for this weird crippled goth heroin dealer. But all right, I'll take it. I like it. Well, I think that pretty much sums up his character, though, is he's a guy who's always pretended to be deep. He's even gone so far as to become a drug dealer because he's so much of a deep-thinking individual in reality. He's just a fucking little white suburban kid living in his mom's basement. And yeah, that's a pretty kind of good operation. Character. Well, yeah, that's the point, because you have to take the villainy. I mean, you look at something like the Maltese Falcon and these, these exuberant bad guys and how the lead character is so sly and always gets the girl and always knows exactly what to do. And you take that away and you take away the shadows and you take away the darkness and you lay it into something as simplistic and trivial as completing high school. And you put this narrow story, you have to figure out a way to make these characters believable. And somehow you're transported on this just journey about this teenager who is figuring out his, you know, or pushing his way deeper and deeper into the young teenage underworld to figure out what happened to his ex-girlfriend. So it's a very basic plot, you know, and it just the dialogue itself makes you transported into this completely different world. It's a different atmosphere. You're instantly... I wouldn't say, you know, introduce into it in like a play fashion, but you're instantly given an idea that this is not our reality, that this is make-believe. Well, it leans so heavily on that crime noir feel to it. I mean, it's not shot like a noir film. It's shot like a modern-day high school film for the most part, but they it interlaced this very strong dialogue of even something like keep your specs clean and stuff like that. All these different like slang phrases, like, um, like the Cullen brothers did with Miller's crossing, just almost creating their own real interesting tough guy language. And the dames are dames 
and cops the, are bulls. You know, it's it's yeah. very very dated, but the way it's delivered and the character interaction, and like some characters don't speak the same ways as other. Like one of my favorites in the movie, Tug, just this uh, awful brute force, and is just cinematically everything you can imagine of a breeze, just a big fucking crusher that drives around in this Mustang, just punching everything that comes in his way. All his dialogue is very short forward. Yeah, no. I guess, but it's being delivered against this just like speakeasy, strange slang coming from Joseph Gordon-Levitt and the two bouncing off each other's like playing Pong against the computer. Just the ball keeps coming back over and over and over and, and Levitt just keeps shooting it more and more and more. Gordon-Levitt fucking hyphens. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's probably the most interesting thing about the movie because the story in itself is... Believe yeah, it or not, Ryan Johnson can fucking write. Yeah, he can. I mean, like, the story itself is nothing particularly new or exciting. It's, a, like, a, it's a crime film. It's just who fucks who over to the guy's trying to figure out who murder. fucks somebody over. That's it, yeah. Somebody get hurt, and somebody wants to figure out the solution to the hurt, and then you're given this very winding, uniquely shot. Like, you mentioned it's shot like a high school movie. This movie has one hell of a lot of feet and birds. Feet and birds all over the movie. So it's a Tarantino film. But it's not a foot fetish type of thing. Like, there's a <laughs> fucking beautiful shot of Joseph Gordon-Levitt running his ass off, and it's heavily focused on the interaction of the feet and the ground. And to me, it was adding this level of realism. And again, like bringing up with the Black Coat's daughter sound design, that specific scene, you just hear the echo of the feet on the concrete and pavement just... It's like the carry sound. It's like the knife sound. It's just something driving you forward to when is this going to end? They can't keep running. Oh, my God. Like you're holding your breath as this is going on and it's just breaking through. It's just giving you a new level of excitement to uh, help you transcend, to get into a new place. Because the character, again, almost everything we're dealing with on tonight's show is loneliness. It's a very lonely person who just wants answers. What will complete them in the end is going to be the pain from getting these answers. It's going to be the loneliness and realizing how empty and alone they actually are. And that's what the story is traveling to is you're in a place of loneliness and you're just going to get to the end of this road and find out like the black coat's daughter. It's one big empty, lonely place. And it plays off all those, those classic scenes in crime noir films and operates justly as so as one of those things. Um, so there's a lot of twists and turns with who's done what to who. And at the end of the day, the, the man gets fucked over the, the detective gets fucked over by someone and he's going to be alone even more after this. Well, he doesn't really this. get fucked over. They finish the job at the end of the day the, he learns the truth. I'm more minute, truth. like a metaphysical fucked over. Like he's not going to find any happiness kind of fucked over. Like he's well, just, you're, you're dealing he's with going to be alone. The truth will set you free, but unfortunately, freedom is devastatingly loneliness. But you have to realize and remember there's a difference between being alone and lonely. And this is a person who, through their actions that you learn, cleverly dropped. And there's a lot of I don't really like flashbacks. I've talked about this before. I think it's a poor way of doing something. This movie deals with a lot of flashbacks that I think were done fairly well. Because I think if you have to flashback to something, it's because you couldn't successfully fit it into the story otherwise. So you're just trying to establish... 
I don't know, more footage. But in Brick's sense, the movie essentially, you don't even realize what's flashing back until it's happened. And sometimes, like, there's a brief dream sequence, which, again, I'm not a big fan of dream sequences either, but it, it worked pretty perfectly in what you're dealing with here. And it's just letting you see how lonely this person is and the actions he has the path he chose in life is what has pushed him to this so he just has to get the final answer he already has established and knows he's he's going to be alone and that yes he's lonely too but at the end of the day he just needs to know what and why and when you find that out it doesn't always save the day like just if you do yeah, you don't get the girl and go well, I mean, up into the sunset. You yeah. get the answers. You get the truth. And the truth is fucking lonely. You can cut five heads off to bring back the demon that you love. And it doesn't always work that way. And in this case, in this movie, the you just need the, uh, the confirmation that it sucks to suck. And that it's going to suck. And that's pretty much what you deal with at the end of Brick. Is everything you didn't want to hear and more. That you even get one last little spicy note of shit right before it eloquently goes to you know a nice dialogue again with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and the brain. Uh, there's a cool theory I've read that the brain isn't real, that he only is in Joseph Gordon-Levitt's head because nobody else technically sees him. I dismiss that because other characters do talk to him. He gets handed notes by the brain, for God's sakes. Yeah, it's never seen other characters talking to him, but I don't know. I don't think that that was the direction Ryan Johnson was and going him in. him being an imaginary friend is oddly irrelevant to the plot. Yeah, even if he wasn't... If he wasn't there, it wouldn't really make a difference. This was uh, this is a fan theory that I think started on Ryan Johnson's actual forum, and he has addressed it, saying he'll give it no credit, neither here nor there, but thinks it's a very interesting story regardless, which is cool, but that's my first thought was the same thing that you had of what does that have to do with anything? If he isn't real, it's still, they didn't... Still, you still get the same outcome. Essentially, they actually did something pretty good by the end of the story, but at the same time, there was a lot of violence. Most of it off-screen, you hear... And I think one of the, the more depressing aspects, spoiler alert, is when you hear about the pin and um, Tug's demise, that that saddened me, that they had to go that way. Well, I mean, that's natural. You're going to go when you enter into that level of bullshit into your life that you can never trust anybody and you'll get fucked over by somebody in the end. But what's interesting is, like, these two films, Black Coast Daughter and Brick, have to be told somewhat out of sequence because brick isn't really as told out of sequence as black coat's daughter is because the fact that black coat's daughter is completely out of sequence like lets you enjoy the story that they are telling and who uh, emma roberts is and where this is going towards the end and it's inherent to the plot that you tell it out of order the way that they do and you couldn't have split it into two different ways and with brick you have a lot of those flashbacks and you like learn new information um that happened earlier well you learn it through other people's perspectives flashbacks is a big point sort of like black goat solder is my point they're they're both kind of in these this weird direction of where how we tell the story is essential to the plot is anything else in the story the fact that we have to use these sort of well, you're working to tell the story 
you're working with a detective story and essentially all the movie does is the work of a cop that he's learning from all these different point of views and all these different people who have different memories and like with tug he plays tug against the pen after learning information from somebody else that's shown through another point of view so all of these things collide together until you eventually like you're not even shown what happens to emily but you get the general gist that if anything tug did the deed yeah just because he couldn't control himself as a human being and he's largely just a big lump of fucking meat clay well there's somebody else you know there's there was there was another another devil's claws in him at that point and there was just another piece of information that was misinformed to him that caused him to freak out because the human nature is human nature so the movie largely is dealing with your own emotions human nature loneliness but it's wrapped into such a neat Ball. I mean, because anyone could have gone out and made a new cop drama, and the way that you wrap this into a high school story, and it still largely deals with the trivial nature of high school and people having opinions because they're, what, football players or because they're higher up, because they're more important than others. Well, like, okay. Any character in Brick, think of any of them, are any of them not lonely Everybody is lonely in that movie, and they're all using people to get to well, that's their, why they're like, doing, yeah. their means. Because, like, Tug is lonely. Um, the pen is lonely. That's why he keeps all these, like, flunkies around him, because he's lonely, and he needs people. And because he has— Emily's lonely. That's why she becomes a junkie. Yeah, he had all those people around, too, because he had, like, nine pounds of heroin in his house. Like, we got—we left kind of out the aspect. We make it sound like it's Joe the Pot Guy, and this is a serious drug movie. Like, it's— Bricks of heroin. <laughs> yeah, bricks of heroin, you know, uh, streets of L.A., viciousness drug sort of thing. So you have to— and, and, like, the actions of the lead character are defendable and applaudable because he's trying at one point to— learn the truth that will set him free and destroy him. But he's also realized that the drugs that are being released onto the street have been spiked and are killing people and something that these can't be released. This can't go out. It's going to kill more people. Like, did you get a little bit deeper into these characters? Like, I think you made an interesting observation earlier, and I think you're actually kind of right because with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, the only person he really felt anything for was Emily and he had to learn to accept that loneliness after she left. But everybody else in the movie has not accepted that fact that you're going to be lonely. And he's the only one who has actually accepted, like, not being lonely, but being alone. Because, I mean, even before him and Emily broke up, he started pulling away from the group and eating behind the porta potties and shit. So, yeah, I mean, she makes reference to eating alone and being a weirdo. And, you know, you, I guess we'll give a, a massive spoiler away here, but he got one of Emily's friends with the brain busted for selling pot because he didn't want her to go down that road. And her whole point is you can't change me. I'm going to do the things that I'm going to do. And this is the crowd I'm going to get with. And if you're this uptight, you can't be around me. And his overprotective nature, was it wrong no, but everyone does have to go down their own experiences and learn their own thing. So you have the duality of these two people, this free spirit and this person that just desperately doesn't want to be alone, who just knows at the end of the day, I'm going to be alone. And, and it's all the one because person she does love is his main goal is to be alone and just be a part at this point with everything in the world as he's more obsessed with loneliness than anything. I think he honestly... It's almost like I don't need anyone else because everyone else is just trouble. 
Yeah, it's surrounding yourself. Sometimes that's the only way at the end of the day to get by is you immerse yourself in being alone, being lonely. You have to face the facts and you have to look at your past. I mean, this character specifically chose to do certain things that led to this and knows that their actions have a reaction. So you have to look at those things. You have to understand that you might have done something. And he did it completely out of love as well. Yeah. I mean... Well, that happens most of the time. You do these things out of love and out of the best intentions and they blow up in your face and never work out right, like cutting off some people's heads, for example, things happen. You try to set up that weird, awkward girl with the really handsome guy at school and some shit happens. It's just what's going to happen is going to happen. And it's not always a fairy fairy tale storybook ending. Life largely is loneliness and people don't want to deal with that. They want to lie to themselves no matter what it takes just so they can be part of a higher subculture or, you know, Let's look at the uh, the femme fatale character, that she's obviously a rich girl. She hangs out with all the high school popular crowds. She knows the pen. What does it serve her outside of self-gratification at the end of the day? She's still alone. Well, I mean, I guess we've all successfully, both successfully picked six movies that were just inherently about loneliness. Yeah. Because every single, like, the moral of tonight's show is loneliness is your only friend. Even when you're in a full room, you might be alone. I mean, you might want to get away from Megan Fox. It's probably better for you. Well, if, like, she leads you off into the woods or alone from a party, you know, any wooded area, I think I would avoid going to with Megan Fox. Well, I'm just like... I'd never prank Sissy Spacek. Like, that would... If she's your friend... You might not want to, like, you, you just need to be alone. Even before she was a demon, you might, it's probably better to be alone. Carrie, it's probably better to be alone because people are going to end up fucking you over. Black Coat's daughter, everybody's going to ban you anyway. Brick Boy, sorry, people are a huge problem. Brick, Heather's, I think, has the most... <laughs> it's all about loneliness. I think Brick, at the end of the day, has one of the most positive messages because it's accepted. Like accepting every, the loneliness. Yeah, you. well, it's just acceptance in general. Things aren't going to go the way you wanted to. Things didn't go the way you wanted to. You can't fixate on it. You're alone. Let go. Just stand there at the football field, and then it's time to go home and get some sleep and stop fucking coughing up blood. Go to a doctor, maybe. That might have... That, in that case, if you're coughing up blood, you might need to go to a doctor, too. But generally, acceptance. You have to accept what's going on and be like water because you can't change what's happening. You can only change yourself. Back to school, you're gonna be alone. Yeah, you're gonna get ostracized, and then you're gonna try and fit in, and you'll probably get ostracized more, and then you're gonna be out in the big world getting ostracized and wondering if you'll ever fit in and have the experiences you see in television and movies. And you probably won't, but you might get drunk in a basement. Probably will get drunk in a basement. We're so positive. We're just such positive people. It's not a nihilistic message, though. It's not like we're nothing matters, man. That's the whole point of it. Nothing matters and everything matters. And you can release that. You can get through each day and get past something awful that happened 10 years ago and grow and change and allow your life to become a constant flowing new force of positivity. You don't just have to think of it as 
it's nothing. Time's a flat circle. Uh, like you can have that whole Nietzschean aspect to it, but fuck that in the long run. There is like value in the world, and just because you're alone doesn't mean I want to see the world burn. Well, like That's... let's look at Carrie. Like there is good in the world, despite the fact their intentions being the best. What you can't control is even if there are two people that care, there are still thirty people that don't and want to see you fail, and that's just not like to anyone in general or to any affiliation in general but there's always going to be people out there that are just dicks the world's filled with them like in heathers there's just roaming sociopaths out in the streets and unfortunately you encounter don't these deserve people. to die <laughs> well no not every not no and no one deserves to take the life or dictate whatever to anyone but i mean in general you just are going to encounter shit and life is going to suck and that's the way she goes man pretty much i mean the there's not much more to be said about than that is life is going to suck. Like even for years, it's going to suck, but then a couple positive things will happen and then it'll suck again for a while and get used to it. Unless you like are born in the middle East or wherever country we're invading next, then you're fucked. Then it's like, sorry, I guess they call you the casualty of war. Well, do you have any words of wisdom? Loneliness is your only friend. (laughs) Ah, it sounds like a Billy Corgan song. Is that a uh, bullet with butterfly wings? Uh-huh. Despite all my hate, I am still so lonely inside. I think he likes to be called William Corgan now. I think Billy is is past him. I'll still call him Billy. I'll probably never refer to him again on the show. He owns the NWA. The Black guys with rap group. No. Yeah, you saw the wheels in my head. Like, what? What? The Nashling Wrestling Alliance. Oh, that makes the a lot NWA. more sense. Okay, because that's like the Ice fucking Cube. NWA for Christ's sakes. He loves wrestling. Billy Corgan, huge wrestling fan. Oh, well, I, that makes a lot more sense than what was going on yeah. in my head because I was just like way confused i was really you think easy's widow would turn loose of those rights i guess it would be suge knight though suge knight probably owns all those rights at this point suge knight will give you aids if you disagree with him what <laughs> that's that's what easy e's wife says that he was given aids by suge knight that it was uh-huh. a setup a, it's a conspiracy that he did it so Suge Knight will give you AIDS. School is back in. It's time to go to school. And we're all very depressed and lonely here at Death by DVD. I guess, is that the end of the show? We're That's depressed. The ashtray's full, the bottle's empty. We'll see you next week. Take your reason. You've been listening to the Death by DVD Back to School special. <laughs> I'm teaching. Did you see that? You, uh, tell us the factor for the female of the species. At this time, we conclude our broadcasting. That's why DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. At this time, Death by DVD leaves the album. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience and broadcast on top of Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain in town, USA. With transmitters on top of the Empire State Building, transmitting 100,000 watts visual and 3 million watts oral circular polarization. We at Death by DVD wish you a pleasant night and a good tomorrow.
Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced.